once. I wanted you to start. I'm still arranging things here. I'm adjusting my microphone, closing windows, getting things ready. <sighs> not ready to go the second the uh, I click the Skype button. Oh, I should have. I, n- I never know whether to send the are you ready because it feels passive aggressive. No, you should, you, you should not send the are you ready. You should just do the Skype call, but you should be okay with the fact that the first couple seconds were I'm still closing windows. And stuff. I ain't mad at you. You're just so excited. You just want someone to, to greet you like a puppy and say, hi, Merlin. That was my John Roderick impression. <laughs> what kind of puppy is that? I don't know. A, a very large one. Yeah. Big paws. <laughs> Eat spaghetti out of a big bowl. Yeah. Like, a, like a Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Mm, John the Newfie. In a bathtub, meatball hero. I got stars in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Just reading about clever Hans. Should have read about this week when uh, people sent it to us. Well, I, I knew the story, but boy, I, sometimes I just really love a Wikipedia page. There's, yeah, a, the, there's a lot of the, really nice sentences in this. The page pinned it down more than we had. It's a, on the last show, we were talking about the horses that count or that appear to count and how they do it. And you had some vague memories about what that might, might actually be going on and how the horse is taking cues from the trainer. Uh, and I don't think either one of us could bring up the specific name, this Clever Hans. This or is, well, this is, this is way more interesting. We should, I don't have the person in front of me, but a couple of people uh, sent us links to so however many episodes ago we talked about the bias <laughs> that horses can be biased that basically the the story that i heard was that and this is wrong i mean it's it's even more interesting than this but i had heard that if you have a circus horse who does things like count that basically there were ways for that there are definitely ways that you could signal the horse overtly but i guess i guess i had heard some at some point that there were ways that they could pick up on uh, unconscious clues or cues but this sounds much more interesting could you give a gloss on what this says so the the extra little bit of twist here is not that the the trainer of the horse was pulling a fast one over on everybody who's coming to see this horse that can do math like the trainer would somehow signal to the horse uh, the right number of taps or whatever but the, even the trainer didn't understand that the horse wasn't actually smart the horse was just picking up on sort of a you know body positioning cues that he was unconsciously sending out to the horse so basically as the horse would clomp the answer one clomp two clomp it would start to approach what what the trainer knows is the correct answer and the trainer's body would tense up and when the horse clomped that last clomp that was the, the correct number of clomps the tension in the trainer's body would drain out the horse would notice this and stop clomping and this is not something the trainer was doing on purpose this was just sort of unconscious signals that the trainer was sending so even the trainer thought the horse knew how to do math when really the horse was just picking up on his uh unconscious cues which is mind-blowing it must have really ruined that guy's day who thought he had a genius horse <laughs> well he kind of does i mean that's pretty if you could pick up on uh that that kind of uh po- unconscious body posture signaling that is a certain kind of genius i suppose <laughs> if you'll forgive me let me read a little bit <clears throat> so hans was a horse owned by Wilhelm von Osten, who was a gymnasium, or gymnasium, as they say in Germany, a gymnasium uh, mathematics teacher, an amateur horse trainer, phrenologist, and something of a mystic. (laughs) I love that sentence. Hans was said to have been taught to add, subtract, multiply, divide, work with fractions, tell time, this is better than my daughter, keep track of the calendar, I can't do that, differentiate musical tones, and read, spell, and understand German. 
And so he would ask him these questions, such as, if the eighth day of the month comes on a Tuesday, what is the date of the following Friday? And Hans would answer by tapping his foot. Questions could be asked both orally and in written form. But I, clearly it was written and given to uh, Herr von Osten, not to uh, the titular Hans. But uh, I, there's so much great stuff in here. And they mentioned specifically that he, never, he was never paid to display Hans. But... Um, then there was an investigation. I don't want to go too far on this, but it is. We'll put it in show notes. It's, a, it's a, actually a pretty. Didn't you think a pretty fascinating article? Because somebody decided to get a little scientific on it, try and do some tests, and this guy Funkst, I guess, tried all these different ways. He isolated the horse and the questioner from spectators. He used questioners other than the horse's master, blinders, varying whether the questioner knew the answer, and he decided, after quote a substantial number of trials that the horse could still get the correct answer. So, right, so here, this gets even better, because now we've got the clever Hans inside the clever Hans effect, right? Because what they're saying is that if, the, the, the really critical part is later on, this guy, who was the next person who did the test, discovered that if the questioner did not know the answer to the question, the likelihood of the horse getting it right went way down. I mean, which, which sounds, sounds obvious if it's a trick, but even if it's not a trick, it still goes to this point that the horse is an incredible observer, yeah, and that kind of makes sense. Like, I, horses are—they're not really prey animals. They're—they're they're certainly not, you know, they're not predator animals. And I suppose there are, you know, wild horses had animals that that preyed on them to some degree. They do have the eyes kind of on the side of their head. Anyway, yeah, uh, you can imagine uh, a, a reason that horse would have that as the horse evolved that the the ones that were good at reading the signals, the the, the body posture of other potentially menacing animals around them that's a good survival characteristic so why would horses be able to read the tension in your body when you were sitting near the horse because that's that's kind of like a prey animal thing to do is is the uh i don't know what the hell their predators might have been whatever prehistoric predators or mountain lions or whatever ready to pounce are the wolves uh, about to uh you know rush us and attack us or whatever that's where that skill would come from um, and it's just being applied in a, in a different weird scenario here yeah. and it's a, it's not a skill that i would imagine humans have uh in the same way so they would of course say well this this horse is doing fractions and and uh, date math in its head it's not merely just stopping clomping its foot when it sees the release of tension in the body of the human being nearby who knows that that clomp was the last one and you've got the right answer yeah and i'm sorry i do need to correct myself it was fungst who came up with this it was his research i apologize it was it was his research that led to this and here's the here's the kind of the nut graph fungst uh, carried out laboratory tests with human subjects in which he, in which he played the part of the horse. Fungst, which is a very German thing to do, Fungst asked subjects to stand on his right and think, quote, with a high degree of concentration, unquote, about a particular number or simple mathematical problem. Fungst would then tap out the answer with his right hand. I love this. He frequently observed, quote, a sudden slight upward jerk of the head, unquote, when reaching the final tap and noted that this corresponded to the subject resuming the position they had adopted before thinking of the question. But like, man, I, this so I mean, this goes so far into the into the point we were actually talking about, which is, you know, I think I was using it to refer to what happens if you have a suspect in a lineup and one of the people in the room, and I, I don't want to say knows who the perpetrator is, but knows who the suspect is. That even their knowledge of knowing who the suspect is can have an unconscious effect or, or I guess, bias or effect. I don't know on the person who's doing the picking. I don't know. I find that stuff fascinating. People are inscrutable, also animals. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but it's also weird because you know I I, I you know I love animals. I I, I I joke and I kid, but I I really I really do. If I'm around an animal, I just melt. I love I love uh, domestic animals. I love you know all kinds of animals, but. You know, when people talk about how their dog is people and stuff like that, and it knows, and like, it's funny because I always, I, I don't want to discount that because I've had those experiences where I feel like I, maybe I'm projecting emotions on it. Like the dog came over, I got fired, and the dog came over and comforted me. You've heard stories like this. So, I mean, like, I don't know. I guess I just wonder how much, I guess, how much do you think that is anything like empathy, or is it just a matter of being extremely sensitive to uh, surroundings? Like, you know, the way they say dogs can smell fear because the way you pers- the way you perspire when you have extreme sudden anxiety is very different from when you're just being mellow. Like, what, what do you think that comes from? You think it's a thing? The, the whole but, idea of like a, a pet being empathetic to you? Yeah, I think people are um, modeling it as if they are human things going on, but I don't think the things that are going on are any less valuable or significant than what they think is going on because they're like oh he knows i had a bad day so he's coming to come for me the dog has no idea what a bad day is or anything like that but i think dogs like other kinds of animals might have reasons to be able to read signals that you are putting out that that are not on your radar smells is one like they smell things about you that you know we don't use smell to pick up uh signals about other people except except in the the extremes and dogs are living in an entirely different world of smell and also things like again as not as a prey animal but as a predator body posture is the rabbit about to bolt does it see me is it relaxed uh those type of signals right um verbal cue all those things that dogs probably do way better than humans and is that not empathy because the dog can tell things about your mood based on what we would consider sort of lower level nonverbal things that is just as valid a form of empathy but the dog has no idea that your boss yelled at you like it's not it doesn't doesn't understand things at that level right right and so it's not when people relate to their animals like people it is a it's not really what's going on but it's a reasonable approximation a lot of the time of what the animals really are sensing about you and then there's situation with things like cats where what's actually going on is very different than the model the cats are sensing things and sending signals that are not getting through to you because what the cat is actually doing is not like, you know, rubbing up against you because it loves you, but, you know, it's claiming its territory or whatever. Like, in the end, it doesn't really matter. In the end, if the cat is happy and you're happy, regardless of whether you're actually communicating to each other or crosswise, then, you know, everyone's happy. Like, it doesn't, you don't have to, <laughs> don't have to overthink it. I right? agree. I, that's, that, that seems, that seems uh, totally sane to me. Yeah, we're, uh, I don't want to say too much publicly, we're, we're dipping our toe into a little bit of animal activity soon in the house. <laughs> You've said, you said too little. I've, yes. But I was remembering, I was remembering um, a housemate that I had in Tallahassee, and not long after I moved in, about 1991, uh, he had a, a cat named Chuck who was a dick. And Chuck hated me and I hated Chuck. And Chuck really leveraged that. Because, you know, have you, you've had a dog, but if you had a cat... Not a cat person. Yeah. But, I mean, cats in particular are very sensitive uh, about smell. And, obviously, there's, you know, when they're rubbing up against you, it's not because they love you necessarily. It's because they want to make sure that you smell like them, that, you know, there's familiarity. Why do cats, ha- why do cats hate water? Because it makes them smell not like themselves and it makes them insane. So, sometimes Chuck, when I was at work, Chuck would go into my room and just drop a deuce square in the middle of my pillow. 
and there's like it was like a like a like a brown egg, raw egg. I mean, there's a big turd in the middle and this big penumbra of poop water around it. And now I'd just come home to that sometimes. Why? Because he knew that smelled like me. That was my pillow, and that's that's where he laid down the law. He did not want me in the house. Think you'd ever get a cat? No. I'm I'm not a cat person. Like uh, I don't that, believe it or not, all of the sort of vindictive cat behavior that cats do, and and you know it's not always vindictive. That's another thing where sometimes you map it onto the cat where the cat is actually upset or has separation right, like, anxiety. Right, like it's like it has a human grudge. It, it's expressly right. So we we think the cat is actually actively seeking revenge against you, and sometimes that may be true, but other times, anyway. Either way, bottom line is poop on your pillow. Um, but that's not what bothers me so much about cats because you know dogs can have accidents in the house as well and be upset when you leave. <laughs> that was and, no accident, John. Yeah, and tear, well, the dogs do things like, you know, tear up your favorite pair of sneakers because they smell like you or chew off the side of the sofa because they're upset that you went to work or whatever. Um, thing that bothers me about cats is I don't like the idea. I, I like the, the function of furry pets. I like, you know, petting them and kind of like having them hang out with you. And I don't like the idea and the reality that with cats, you could just be casually petting them and at any second you could have puncture wounds. And I don't like that. I don't, right. I don't like that as a possibility. Well, and then, and then, and that's and that's not that's not a, a, like aggression in the, in the usual human sense. That's just a cat being a cat. That's their right. nature. And they're some, predators. Sometimes it's aggression. Sometimes they're just startled. Sometimes they just didn't want to be scratched there. Sometimes it's like you know what you know. And and so dogs like if that was true with dogs, like you'd be petting them and all of a sudden they would bite you hard enough to break the skin. Like that's why dogs get put down. But cats break you know, scratch you hard enough to break or bite you hard enough to break the skin. And it's like ow ow oh that darn cat. Nope, not gonna happen in my house. I don't. I don't like being uh, having my skin pierced by a pets. Yeah, that's, that's basically <laughs> where I draw the line. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary. I think declawing the cats is cruel, but if that's what you want to do, go for it. But anyway, I'm a dog person. Yeah, yeah, I'm too. So uh, thanks to the people who um, sent that to us. That was that's a we'll put that in show notes, and that is a uh, terrific page i don't think we have too much else for follow-up i mean there's one that's a little bit of a can of worms but i thought it was kind of interesting from the twitter um listener nicholas writes to say last name withheld uh this may be too hairy but after hearing john's rational mindset i'd love to hear more on your experiences if any with faith and uh, i'd be okay with that but it might be too much of a deep dive but we got a little time i i think the answer is in everything that we talked about last time that there's the idea of faith of like the, the only faith if faith makes you feel better uh i guess that's fine or if you know that there's no chance of getting any information about something you can choose what you would like to be true and believe it and then say well i don't have any reasons but it's just faith but i think where you get into trouble is things that have some basis in rationality that you can yep. make determinations about but then deciding i am uh, i am going to select or make up some you know it's, it's dogma again something that is not subject to scrutiny and rationality i'm going to put it aside i'm going to put a little fence around it and i'm going to call that faith and that is destructive rather than constructive because anything you isolate like that I mean, it's like, well, I'll, I'll only do it with that with things that are good. Well, how do you even know that they're good? You have to subject them to that kind of scrutiny to, to make a determination about them. But if you wall them off and say this is beyond question, this is an article of faith, then you can't you can't make any determination about it. Like you yourself, other people can make determinations. They think that thing is bad, that thing is good, but you will never revisit it 
with a with a mind towards trying to figure out whether this is actually a good thing or not and so that's why i mean for me it really doesn't have any place in my life it has a place in other people's lives which is fine but it's dangerous because uh whatever articles of faith you hold they may be benign they may they may be beneficial or they may be incredibly harmful and the person holding them has no means to make that determination if they're not subjecting those articles of faith to any kind of rational decision making yes and to use an old testament reference i'm going to cut the baby in half with this one uh i i think you know you hear that phrase like article of faith i'm not sure where that comes from um but it's the problem is when you use a phrase like article of faith, as, as, as especially as somebody who's not somebody with faith, faith <clears throat> it ends up getting closer to what you describe as dogma. And I, you know, may, maybe I'm a word nerd, but I think there's a difference between all those things. I think the difference between God, religion, faith, dogma, I think all those are, are, can be extremely different things. And for my, I mean, they're asking for your opinion, not mine, but I'm going to jump in because I do have a, a really strong feeling about this. Um, I, I'm. I have in my in the past been very much a person of faith, specifically a non-denominational Protestant Christian, like where I believed, uh, not just believed. It was just a huge part of my life. I mean, it, it's when you, the, the the thing that people who don't go to church. Did you ever go to church? I went to church every Sunday and uh, Holy Day of Obligation, more or less. Right. Until I was 18 years old, including when we were on vacation. We would find a church wherever we were on vacation and go to that. This has been the source of several episodes of Roderick on the Line that were destroyed, um, is that, you know, I, personally, my, my feeling is that a lot of people who have never been really fully engaged in, in a church community in particular, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to make a straw man out of religion. It's easy to make a straw man out of church, faith, all of those things, especially if you're, the, you know, like a, a guy in a trilby who considers himself, a, you know, an activist atheist. But there's a lot that's kind of subtle, uh, subtly wonderful uh, about a community of faith that that is is not just a bunch of dummies who sit around watching televangelists. I mean, that's a bad rap. Christianity has gotten a terrible rap, and a lot of religions have gotten a terrible rap. And so, like in my case, like it's it's hard to get how much that community can like buoy you. Like being around these people. In our case, like you know, a couple couple three days a week, several nights a week, vacation Bible school. You know, some people look at that and go, "Oh, indoctrination." It was no, it wasn't. It was it was just being surrounded with incredibly generous and kind people, and you ate food together. That's what it was. It's a uh, it's it feels like something from another time. And so, on that one hand, I feel like the whole idea of people of faith gets kind of a bad rap because you know they get tarred with all the worst things that happen that have ever happened in association with their religion or faith writ large. So I'm just going to turn, I'm going to suggest a book that I like a lot, which you just saw me drop in notes. I'm a big fan of Annie Lamott. Her book on writing, Bird by Bird, is one of the best, it's just, it's it's an essential book on writing, especially if you find writing challenging and hate yourself. It's a really good book. But she also has a wonderful book about how she came to Christianity late in life. It's called Traveling Mercies, and it's really quite good. Um, so if you if you're interested in these kinds of topics and what a what a what a what an intellectual person how an intellectual person could ever even acknowledge the idea of faith in the age of science read this and I think you get a lot of out, out of it. So like my 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 thought on this, which could not be any more simplistic, is that faith and science are a sort of chocolate and peanut butter that we have to keep in completely different parts of the house. I think anytime you're trying to use faith to bolster science you're going to get some terrible science. And anytime you try and use science to bolster faith, you end up getting like an incredibly um, mangled faith. Because some, my understanding of this, and my belief anyway, is that 
people of faith understand that what they're believing is essentially an act of faith. It's the whole point is that it can't be proven. Like I believe in God's grace. And that's something that like I don't have to depend, defend that at a bar with somebody and I don't need I shouldn't need a scientific proof. I don't need, you know, you know, St. Anselm or St. Aquinas or, you know, or Thomas Aquinas or Descartes to give me some kind of a proof of this because the faith is what makes it the faith. If it were something we could prove then I, I wouldn't need faith for that. So I don't know. I mean, I have a lot of aloha for faith, and I think it's kind of a bummer that it gets such a bad rap among people who consider themselves public intellectuals, because there's some some of the, the, the most intelligent and kindest people I've met are people of faith, and they're not dinglings. So I don't know. I think I think you can have a life of the mind and a life of the heart, and you do not have to sacrifice either. You know, it's just that there's so there's so many dum dums out there trying to like move us back in terms of what we know about science and history by saying because Bible when they don't have the slightest idea how to read Aramaic and that's that's just a goddamn shame. That's my well, thought. It, it doesn't even matter. The details don't even matter. All, all that matters is like where the danger lurks even in the, you know, no matter who is involved in this process is that there are certain things that you are not willing to apply your rational mind to. Right? Either that, either that you can't because it's fruitless because it's pointless because you're never going to get an answer. Um or because they're just off limits, um, and that leads to all sorts of dangerous things. Because it, it can, but it it, it 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 need not. It, I think it it, it necessarily needs to hmm. eventually, right? Because most people don't have these don't have faith in things that are isolated little islands. The faith is something that's connected to some sort of umbrella thing, and. Lots of people can either, lots of things are either under that umbrella and you didn't know it, or people can sneak things under the umbrella. And if you can get things under that umbrella, it's the people with faith like, well, that it slides right in. It's like, that's part of, that's part of the whole thing. Right. And if I'm in for that, I'm in for a penny, I'm in for whatever that expression is. Um, and you either have to actively resist that and then decide where you're drawing all these lines based on like whatever, or things can sneak in there sometimes things are in there you don't even know about them right you're growing up in the church talking about all the community aspects of it all the great things about uh you know growing up in a church community one thing perhaps never mentioned in the entire church community is by the way we hate the gays because there's no such thing as gays no one talks about them it's not even discussed um but eventually as you get older you realize oh that was actually part of the faith too and you're like oh i'm totally on board with everything in this faith it's great and everything uh, but I, did, I didn't know that was in there i didn't even know what gayness was or if i had heard of it it and it's like no yeah no that's totally in there and you're like well can i can i not do that part and just like having the the dinners and and love thy neighbor it's like well it's kind of a package deal it's not it's absolutely i know, I know but i'm not. saying like so then you're oh you're a cafeteria catholic you just pick and choose right no, and so no, no. how do you how do you choose which things are in and which things are out uh being stoned to death for getting a tattoo is that in or out um i'm gonna say that say that one's out what are you basing it on well there's surrounding context that I'm using, and it's like, oh well, now you're you now you're applying some other form of reasoning to this big list of things, and then you're sort of carving out your own, yeah, you know, like organized religion always like no matter what it is, it wants to have them some sort of umbrella type thing, and it's really dangerous to get in the mindset where you're willing to accept anything in the umbrella, not everything on the umbrella, but like, well, it's like what what system are you using to choose what's in and what's out? Are you just making up your own stuff? If you're making up your own stuff, then you kind of lose a sense of community because everyone is making up their own stuff there. It's like it, 
once you allow that in, that's what all the, the, the super annoying atheists who everyone hates because they're super annoying uh, are trying and failing to communicate is the danger of allowing this pattern of thinking uh, into sort of your tool, your, your set of tools to reason about the world because you never want to engage it at the wrong time or you never wanted to let someone else engage that pathway, sort of that code path, execute that code path in your brain to use uh, <laughs> programming parlance. Because if they can do that, then they can bypass all this other stuff and get you on board with terrible ideas. And maybe not your fault. Maybe you're being coerced into it. Maybe uh, maybe you don't realize you're doing it or whatever, but it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like putting a big open pit in your house and you put tape around it and you know it's there and you, you kind of, you know, over the years, you always just know to walk around it. Even when the lights are out, you can avoid it, but you do have a giant pit in your house and it would like be better not to have that pit at all. And that's what the shrill atheists are terrible out there telling you, oh, you guys, you got a giant pit in your house and you're like, shut up. It's fine. Yeah, but you're, you're, con- you're conflating uh, the, your, what I hear you saying is a conflation of, of several different, extremely different things. So I'm, I'm not here to defend uh, terrible things that, that anybody has done, but that's bad human behavior is bad human behavior without regard to what somebody believes. Uh, yeah, I, I know. But like, it, like what you're hoping is that you have some sort of way to talk about bad human behavior and explain why it's bad. And why it's good, right? It doesn't mean that people don't do it. People make up reasons for anything, right? It's just that, like, in sort of the life of the mind, when you're deciding for yourself, is this a thing that I think is good or bad? There should be one set of tools that you use to make that determination. Obviously, no one is perfect. Everyone doesn't do that perfectly or whatever. You don't need a religion to have all sorts of bad ideas. That's This is all true. But... By allowing in this this other set of uh, this other way of thinking, this this particular thought technology, thought technology that says some things, you know what, I'm not going to apply my rational mind to. I'm just going to accept on faith because whatever reason. That's a dangerous thing to have in there at, at all. I mean, just across the board. Like, uh, doesn't it matter what that faith is about? Not really, because I think it's not it's not so much the the thing that because for most people, like, I mean, you can say it's benign because it's like, well, it's it's. It's a it's a dangerous tool to have, but I only ever give it input that produces uh, beneficial output, so it's fine. Uh, I I still think that's a liability. I mean, that that's for me. For other yeah, people, yeah, it's not sure, a liability. Sure. For, for other people, it's a big benefit because that may be an important tool for so them, you know, for just keeping your sanity and being happy and being able to make sense of the world, right? Um, but based on the past show, when I talked about my model of mine, it is not a good thing for me. Uh, it, I, I don't want that as a, as a code path in, in my brain. You can't get rid of things like that in other people. Like that's again with the annoying atheist. They're like, I wish everyone didn't think like this. Well, that's great. You can wish that all you want, but, uh, you can't, you know, you can't go in and rewire everybody's brains. It could be that a lot of people have brains that are going to make them miserable if they don't have faith as part of their life. That assumes so many things about strangers that you've never met that, it just assumes so many facts not in evidence that it becomes very easy to make a straw man out of not just an institution but individual people by saying, well, you know, once I can find the least logical or scientific thing about what these people are doing, then – and I understand I understand that you're saying that this is not for you, which I, I totally understand and respect. It happens to not be for me either per se. But I, I do leave – I do leave that door open because I don't know everything. And I mean, I guess I would not try and use faith to understand whether a bridge will stand up in a, you know, under a certain amount of load. To me, that's a wholly different thing. But the idea of like what happens in the afterlife and nobody even finds out what you think about that. Like I'm so okay with somebody believing that 
<laughs> that there are that there are I don't know how to put this because no matter what you say when I'm when you're talking about this stuff, you end up sounding like an ignoramus. But like I just I just feel like the stuff that we hold in our heart that may not have a consequence in in how we think about like whether we use our turn signal can still can still be can be uh can have a lot of great consequences in our life and the lives of the people around us without anybody even knowing what we believe or have faith in is, and which is a little bit of a weepy eyed easy midwestern idea of this but i just hate to see a bunch of really really like what some of the best people i've ever met nice people i know you wouldn't even know they were christians except that they are just incredibly kind and decent people who who just uh, believe in this thing that doesn't have any impact on anybody else apart from how their kindness is expressed in the world well, that's part of the application of rationality. It's it's not rational to decide because someone has faith in something that they're a bad person, that they're dangerous, that all sorts of the prejudices that, you know, these prejudices that the annoying atheists and rationalists and skeptics will apply, like, oh, I can't take you seriously because yeah, I know you're a religious person. I think you're dumb because you're a religious person. That is not rational either. That is like, that is a failure of rationality because you're you're deciding based on because this person has this code path has this thought technology you are lumping them into this bin with like you said of people who are just like well you can't take them seriously and obviously they're they're not smart or they wouldn't be a good scientist or they're screwing up their own life or they must be miserable or they're making other people none of those things are true absolutely not because like you said or or they must believe like because I know that there are there are, there are these six let's say six kinds of famous six people who are famous out there who believe these things that are kind of horrible um, that that they get lumped in with those same people whether or not they think those people are lunatics which they very much might yeah or you know or someone says something that you that makes you decide that they're lumped in with some other organization or religion or cult and you just put them in a bit like that's that is all not that is all a total failure of rational thinking as well and that is where I think a lot of the sort of a atheist non-spiritual people get in trouble is that they they they're not they're confident in their own uh rationality so much so that they just entirely give in to bias and decide that everybody who has any kind of faith in anything is a worthless human being and so that ends up being coming like a, a sort of dogma yeah exactly the, the, yeah. the dog the dogma is like i i'm you know why do i discount this person well because they're religious well because they have faith well like and therefore all these bad things about them and therefore i you know they are guilt by association with all these other people even though i think that it is dangerous to have those thoughts uh, that code path in your head you have to look at the individual person and say okay well what about this person in this person's life what are they actually like what do they actually do what are, what are their you know look at look at the actual person don't don't categorize them based on same thing with atheists people are like oh the atheists must be they're they're godless heathens they're terrible like what look at what they actually do are they nice people are they fun to hang around with do they help other people do they seem to be trying to better themselves and like it's it's ridiculous to make judgments based on those categorizations and both sides do it um and all of these sort of like oh you know oh it doesn't work for me it doesn't make sense to me attempting to sort of proselytize that to try to you know spread like convince other people that they should come over to your way of thinking about it it's mostly pointless because like what what are you even trying to do is that are you trying to make yourself feel better but other yeah people, like if, if that goes to, if that goes great like what will happen yeah are you trying to change the minds are you trying are you actually trying to make them happier what if they're super happy the way they're like well they're happy but they're hurting other people well maybe talk to them about the hurting other people part but maybe don't you know it's 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 a very fraught subject and i don't here's the thing with that that's what i talked about in the last time about the that my rational mind trying to be in charge and stuff 
The rational mind does come up with some things that most other people find fairly terrifying. And if you are to discuss them, like things that you've thought about and conclusions that you've come to based on everything that you know on a topic, people don't want to hear it. Uh, in the same way that if someone with faith says, I've spent my life with this, I've thought a lot about this, all my experiences have led me to believe this and let me tell you about it, people do not want to hear it. No one wants to come and hear the good news. Like the people who knock on your door want to tell you the good news. You don't want to hear it from them in exactly the same way. You do not want to hear that crap. It's like it's it's like someone telling you about their dreams, right? You just don't want to hear it from other people. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, like that's great. That's what's going on in your head. That's what you figured out. Don't tell me like this is this is the way things are. Like that's just not. People don't want to hear that from other people. And unless you try to present it in a way where you're actually like preaching and recruiting and then it gets slimy and scummy and you really don't want that it's like you can maybe if someone is interested and they ask you questions give them answers but once you are at the point where you are trying to essentially preach to people about anything preach to people about atheism you i've you've told, we've all seen someone preach about i've seen people preach about vegetarianism atheism uh like to like, people, to like proselytize yes like but to try to bring them over to their way of thinking about something and to explain to them i've thought a lot about this and here's the way things are and if you don't think this you're a dummy uh no one wants to hear that and so <laughs> it, it is well, it's really it's really about educating people ed- I, I love that phrase yeah and, and and atheists have the little bit thing going where it's like you see all the polls of like uh which would you rather have as president uh a woman, a black person, a gay person, a child molester, an atheist, Islamic terrorist. And atheist is always like the bottom of the bin because just of the country we live in or whatever. And so I think atheists have historically kept even more to themselves because they don't want to tell you how they see the world because people... No, it's, it's, the, it's the punk rock of being 26. Well, that's libertarianism. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. Our thanks to uh, listener Nicholas, last name withheld, uh... uh not too hairy. I'm glad we touched on it. <laughs> I think it is hairy, and I just think there's, there's nowhere. I think there's nowhere good to go with it. So, like, yeah, it, starting to realize that, yeah. But like, it's it's not a fruitful avenue of of conversation. I don't think it's it's not as fruitful. For example, as we talked about in the last show, I think we're the model of mind. And so, well, coming up with a model because it, that's sort of like a model of like warring factions. This is like. This is a, sort of a, a meta level overlay on top of that. I just feel like I feel like I'm in a, in a really awkward position here as as somebody who used to be a person of faith. I do not consider myself that now. I don't consider myself an atheist. I, I consider myself a non theist, and I wish that was a distinction that we could make without sounding precious. But I, I just happen to be somebody who's not a, not a theist of of any kind. But like I'm also like my awkward part is like no, I don't I don't actually have a dog in this fight. It's it's the same as I feel like in some some ways, wow, talking about a third rail. There are a lot of people who are sort of downtrodden in society right now and I don't have any reason to want them to have rights in the world apart from the fact that I think everybody should have rights. And so even though I may not be in that minority group, like I really would like people to give give them a chance to have their own say, whether or not we agree with them and think they deserve to have a, a voice. And uh, <laughs> now I sound like Rick Perry or something. I just I think it's just it just bums me out that that has become, you know I you know I don't even mind that the the, the dingling atheism doesn't even bother me that much. It's mostly just people talking to each other. That doesn't bother me. It's just you know it, it'd be a shame to overlook the people who are actually really decent people. I am making a certain kind of logical fallacy here. I know, but that's all. It's like I, I'm not trying to proselytize any about anything more than saying that 
that you know, I just wish we could let people believe what they believe. I, and, and I respect you saying that's not for you. It's not for me either, <laughs> which makes this complicated. I just don't. I just wish that that was something that we could have be okay on both sides. That it's just it's so divisive, and it's just it seems like an unnecessary amount of divisiveness in this country. Well, I mean, I think people don't care until someone brings their dogma to you and tries to shove it at you and that's but like, it doesn't have it, to be dogma i know but no but like so if someone brings their supposed rationality to you and tries to shove it down your throat you can battle back with you know using the in, within their system you can say you can be a science bully yeah that, yeah actually that is a bad idea and let me tell you why and you should accept my reasoning because reasoning is how you came supposedly came to your conclusion so more reasoning should be able to convince you otherwise if someone comes out with you with dogma you've got no defense uh, you yeah. can't you can't yeah. fight back with other dogma because they don't accept it and you can't use reason because it's not involved and that's that's what i think and, and you could say well, all right well if someone comes out with you with supposed reason and you try to convince them and you fail it's just as bad right uh that if they're just better at convincing people or if you are not good at coming up with reasoning that other people find convincing, like you could say it's just as dangerous, but it just, it just feels so helpless if someone comes at you with dogma and someone just says, well, we need to do this because uh, insert article of faith here. You've got nothing. You can't come back at them. It's like, well, all right. Like that's I have nothing except I can say uh, I can try to give you a bunch of reasons why that's bad. And they're like, no, 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 no. Reasons don't don't right, apply wait, here. Let me let me uh, let me ask you a passive aggressive question. Um, what happens when you're observing? Uh, we'll just call it an argument, but some but some kind of a you know it doesn't have to be a fight, but it's disagreement between two people. How do you feel when one side has the better argument but is not good at making the point? Does that is that ever a thing you notice? It's why I would never argue, for example, with Cory Doctorow. Because uh, I think he's wrong about some things, but he's way better at arguing than I am. It's one reason I just don't argue with people in general. I'm not good at arguing. Do you have to be good at arguing to be right? Uh, I think you have to... If you have thought about your position a lot, that's what makes it quote-unquote good at arguing. If you've thought about your position a lot, you can support it well, and you know all the ins and outs of it. If you have a vague notion of your position, the, uh, the other side of the argument can like i said in the previous shows in the act of trying to get you to pin down exactly what it is you think lead you into places that you hadn't visited it's like well i actually hadn't thought about that but now that it's come up an argument i need to make a on-the-spot decision about which direction about the exact shape of this small detail of the position that i'm holding and you, i mean you don't have time to make a good decision and you may not even know and so like if you if you have just out if you've traced the whole shape of it and come at it from every angle and have the shape of your argument even if that shape is like the wrong shape or it's the shape of the wrong answer you know all the perimeters of it whereas if you just have a vague notion that that guy's thing is the wrong answer but you don't know what the shape of of your side is you're gonna lose like it's mm-hmm. not gonna you're, you're not and 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 you deserve to because all you have is kind of a gut feeling that that is not basically not that but you don't have anything to say, well, why not that? You, your gut is not something. You haven't thought about it enough. You haven't figured out all the ins and outs. And maybe your gut feeling is wrong, too. Maybe you're both wrong. Like, you have to actually figure it out. It's like, again, it's like the project plan. Until you break it down into a million tiny steps, you don't actually know what's involved, even though you may know overall this is what we... But it, it keeps coming, for you, process. it keeps coming back to that clarity of understanding what it is, understanding what the thing in the world is, and then understanding what you think about it and what you have to really say about it. It keeps coming back to that for you. Yeah, because that's that's what the active argument does that to you it makes you the, the other person is going to probe at all the various perimeters of your idea and try to because you can't you can't argue about something that's vague you have to argue about it in specifics and if, if 
either side hasn't figured out the specifics, then it's like, well, you lose by default because you don't even know what it is you're you have you have a vague notion of what you want, or maybe you just want the you just want not my thing for some reason, but you don't you haven't pinned it down. And I don't know anything about Cory Doctorow or his positions or what you might disagree with them, but I would imagine someone who is professional in the field of speaking or whatever on these topics has vast experience uh, tracing the outlines of their positions on I didn't, on, I didn't mean that as a, as, a, as a slag on Corey. It's just that so, some people are just awfully – and again, this comes back to forensics in some way. Some people are really, really good at arguing, and some people like arguing. And, and not arguing necessarily in like in a mean way, but in the sense of like having a position – and decimating the other side by proving that point, whether or not they actually believe it. I mean, that, that's a sport for some people, is they just really genuinely enjoy knowing all the ins and outs of rhetoric and whether or not they actually believe it. But being able to to basically you know, salt the earth of whatever the other side's argument is by, by being able to, yeah, maybe make a better logical argument, but also knowing all the ins and outs of the rhetoric to be able to do it with incredible elan so that in a public forum, they could appear to be the person who not only won the argument, but is right. Yeah, the, the only thing that really bothers me is, you know, that most arguments in real life are nothing like that. Most arguments in real life are won by the person that can make the broadest sweeping appeal to emotion of the observers. Like, it's kind of like back in the bad old days of school, where it didn't matter who's actually right or wrong. All that matters was who uh, who the observers think is quote-unquote winning, right? And that has nothing to do with right or wrong or logic or anything like that. And mm-hmm. in the sort of the, the grown-up world, it's, you know, the skills, of, the skills of, a, of a politician or someone who's a smooth talker. The things that you say are almost unimportant. You could say nonsensical, ridiculous things and appear to quote-unquote win because you have this, you have riled up the masses into, you know, like, very smart people can convince lots of other people to agree with them and do what they want, but the way they do it has nothing to do with sort of reason, right? And what we're all talking right. about is so this academic kind of forensic thing where it's like, well, if we wrote all these arguments down on a piece of paper and had a set of impartial people 100 years from now look at it, who would they decide actually won this argument, right? That's right, not right, how, right. They, for the most part, outside of the realm of like debate societies and some internet nerd forums and stuff, that's not how actual arguments work. You ever listen to that show? Me. You ever heard, heard that show, Intelligence Squared? You ever listen to that on public radio? I don't think so. It's basically it's like an hour long show that uses an Ox- Oxford debate format. Um, and it's the way that they do it is very interesting. So they bring in, um, I actually heard a wonderful interview with the guy who's the moderator. You ever, there's a Panoply has that uh, podcast on how people work, and they had an episode on how a debate moderator works. And basically, what they do is they take an issue and they very, very, very carefully try to frame the question. This week's episode was the death penalty should be abolished, yay or nay. And so they pick like the smartest person they could think of on one side, and they ask them like two questions, <laughs> like who is like your worst nightmare as somebody you would face in a debate about this, and then second, who would you like to be your debate partner to help you with this? They bring the four people on, and then they do an Oxford debate. Here's how they measure it measure is that at the top of the show they pull the audience the live audience on how they would respond to that so they say the death penalty should be abolished and then just arbitrarily let's say you know 43 percent of the audience agrees with that and then at the end they ask the audience again and whoever gets the biggest delta one way or another is is seen to have won the argument 
That's the worst of it. Like that's the worst way to measure. <laughs> the, the, like, vox vox like, populi. <laughs> have you have you riled the riled up the masses enough? Like there's so many ways you can do that. Like I'm just a caveman. <laughs> you could you could do that by exactly. You could do that Ladies by making stern pronouncements about the, the 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 final season of a favorite television show and sway their votes. Like a, a skilled orator who knows what buttons to push can bring anyone over any side of anything. Like because that's you know. That most people are not operating most of the time with their rational mind in charge, and the other mind is much more Every, everything else, as you say. Right, right, yeah, everything else is much easier to manipulate, and that, right. I mean that's how everything works. That's that's how personal relationships works. That's right. how politics works. That's how that's just how life works. Like that, for the most part, that is life. Um, and so we have to deal with that, and that's why it's really hard to be a politician and to be intellectually honest, because in some ways those are at odds because. Uh, you know, and that's why a lot of politicians are really smart people. Like you look at all these politicians saying the stupidest things in the world, and they all went to these fancy Ivy League schools and were geniuses and valedictorians. It's like, how does this even work? It's like, if you're super smart, one of the things you can do with that super smartness, kind of like a supervillain, is use it to figure out how to convince lots and lots of other people to agree with you or do what you want. That's kind of using it for evil, but could also be kind of using it for good. Because if you say, I'm going to use my super smarts to figure out how to convince a huge number of people to agree with me, and then once I get into elected office, I'm going to do a bunch of things that I think are for the good of humanity. Maybe that's what they're all thinking. Right. Maybe some of them is just an unconscious skill, and they don't have, they're not thinking about it at that level, and they just kind of fall into it, and it actually turns out they're really good at, at, uh, at convincing people uh, to vote for them, essentially. And that works at every level, whether it's, you know... Uh, being the leader on your intramural softball team or like being a manager at work or, uh, you know, being the, the leader of your household and having like, it's just, that's, that's the game we're all playing here. Um, and the people who are trying to use their rational mind to get things done, either get compartmentalized where they have a regular life, but then when they, they go to work, they work as a scientist or an engineer, but then the rest of their life is like that. Or they're trying to, apply that rationality to every aspect of their life and they are at odds with pretty much every other person on the planet and it can feel right. kind of isolating and pointless because it's the kind of thing where if you had an audience full of the uh, full of judges who were going to take the debate and transcribe it and analyze it over the course of six years uh, using all this, the, the rational tools at their disposal and come up with someone who "Quote unquote," won the argument. A, that would be super hard to do. B, no one would care. And C, it's pointless because it's it's completely academic. Because the way you actually get things done in the real world is to convince people, not to convince a panel of judges trying to use their <laughs> rational minds to figure out who won. Right? The right. only place it applies is like math, science, engineering, where you can get a result, uh, and that result can be useful to other people. Like, hey, good job! I like that bridge. I can drive my car over it. It works. I don't know how it came to be, uh, but whatever you did there, thumbs up. <laughs> this episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Dash. You can learn more about Dash right now by visiting thedash.com. This is so cool, you guys. Dash is a website that lets you quickly create real-time custom dashboards for any of your stuff. These dashboards allow you to get a visual overview of important data for your website, your business, even your life. There are dozens of pre-built widgets for services like App Figures, Google Analytics, GitHub, Twitter, and many more. But you can also create your own widgets to show your own custom data. They have an API that allows you to share data from Dropbox or the web. 
and create custom widgets like charts, speedometers, tables. I've done this and it is so cool. You can push data or Dash can pull stuff from either Google Sheets or just a URL. It's bonkers. And the pricing is so simple. Free accounts get unlimited public dashboards. Pro accounts are a low, low $10 per month and also have unlimited private dashboards. Now for a limited time, if you sign up for a free account at thedash.com, You'll automatically get one private dashboard in addition to your free account's unlimited public dashboards. There is no credit card required, and you'll keep your private dashboard forever. That's a fantastic offer. You should definitely be taking advantage of. There is nothing to lose, so go right now. Run. Sign up right now at thedash.com. And thank you so much to Dash for putting our data where it can actually be useful and for supporting reconcilable differences. We wasted all time on this. On this Wait, no, no time is wasted, John. Fruitless, fruitless avenue of of, uh, of not actual debate. I disagree. All right, well. um, we're still trying to we're just trying to dig to see we, all these people who are, are saying nice things about the show. It's like we can get them to hate us, can't we? Can we talk? <laughs> like, let's talk about religion. Let's see. We, we, we can oh, wait, do what this. about cats? We don't like cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I I think I'm nicer to cats than you are. But then again, they didn't crap on my pillow. I am so, you, so you nice to cats. Oh, you don't know me. You don't know me. I am so nice to cats. Nice conceptually about the concept of cats, not individually to individual cats. Oh, I'm 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 tremendous to individual cats. I think I think cats is a thing. It's pretty freaky, but well, uh, you seem to have it in for Chuck. Chuck was a dick, man. He was he was he was a real tough ball player. And, and the thing is, Tony would feed him half a can of tuna. Who gives who gives their cat half a can of people tuna like in oil? I mean, someone that's who, someone who loves their cat and thinks that's what the cat wants. Do you think Chuck someone was who just, runs with twenty pound barbells? Maybe he's a Horcrux, or you know, maybe he was executing on Tony's behalf. Maybe maybe Tony's the one that wanted to poop on my pillow, and he sent Chuck to do his dirty work. Maybe Chuck was sleeping on your pillow and just couldn't hold it anymore because he had eaten half a can of tuna <laughs> that's, and oil. That's just how Chuck downloads stress. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. I have so much more to say about this. Should we get on to our, um, our nominal topic of uh, S1E10? Sure. Now that we've I don't, I have, the show. I have very little idea where this is going, but I am totally game. You should have an idea of where it's going because there's a nice little outline of notes that makes some kind of sense. It says... Yeah, you typed almost 11 words. Yeah, it says Merlin's World of Music. It's like uh, Doug Henning's World of Illusion, but Achacha. no mustache. Is this your card? Yeah. You have a world of music. I do. I didn't say it's Merlin's World of Music without capital W, capital M. It's just Merlin, capital M, and then lowercase world of music. Mm. You're a musical guy. You uh, are more musical than most people on your podcasts. You sing. Sometimes you play guitar uh, for sponsors on various podcasts. You have, I'm assuming, uh, volunteered to write songs. Um, You've been in bands. You talk about music a lot. You are more musical than the average person. Music seems to have an important uh, place in your life. And... uh, I wanted you to explain how that came to be and what music means to you and why and why other people are less musical than you, including me. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and I would like to probably, you know, parry a little bit because I know you've had some serious interest in music in the past. So I I would love to do this. Yeah. I don't want to jump right to the band stuff because that is the first most interesting thing to me because that's like when people get to a certain age, uh, some people join bands and stuff but i think we have to go back and some people don't i think we have to go back farther than that and you talk about like 
what your first memories of music were when you when you were a kid? Uh, two two big threads. Um, the smaller thread was that my family, my mother and father, were in not Columbia probably, but the RCA Music Club. Remember, you get like six for a penny or whatever. And so they would get uh, new 8-track tapes every month. And their taste was just hilarious. I mean, so much of the tapes that we had, I think they must have signed up for easy listening because we had tons of tapes by Montavani and uh, Ray Conniff singers and just all of these, Percy Faith, all of these incredibly like, you know, just you know, what they used to call beautiful music or easy listening music. So we had a ton of that. But we also had a fair amount of uh, stuff like my dad loved... Uh, my dad loved country music, uh, and so we had some some really good country music. We had some comedy tapes, but, you know, the stuff that we listened to around the house. And then, of course, I had like a Mary Poppins or Free to Be You and Me or, you know, kids things that I would pop in and listen to. That was the smaller thread in some ways. The giantest part as a kid for me was AM radio because um, I remember at one point my parents would always give me their old clock radio. And this is back when a clock radio – God, they were so cool. Uh, the clock radios my parents always got – had, you know, a, like a, a, a an analog clock and a, a, a radio that you analog radio that you could tune, and they always had like a little reading lamp. Do you remember when they would have reading lamps on them? I do not. It was so well. I'll see if I can find a photo, but it was a pretty typical kind of thing that that you would get at like an SH SNH Green Stamps or a Sears or whatever, and uh, and so. On the one hand, it was really cool that it had a lamp so I could read in bed while I was listening, but it, most of them also came with. I think it, I would, I'm going to call it a pillow speaker. I don't know if that's what it is, but it was a little, there's like a little like eighth of an inch thing you'd plug in to the clock radio and then there's a little cable, a little, you know, thin line that would run to a uh, speaker that you could put under your pillow. So you could listen, like if you were in bed with your partner, you could yeah. listen, listen to music without bothering them. Wait, is, was it supposed to go under your pillow? Well, yeah, or, or like near, you could just like listen to music without bothering somebody, without is headphones. It, so this is like, yeah, this is the days before, you know, the Walkman and headphones came and swept away. Uh, yeah, this is, this. yeah, this is like 15 years before the Walkman. So yeah. it's like a little dangly speaker on the end of a cord, and the reason it wouldn't bother the person next to you in bed is because it was so quiet, and you could only hear it if you put your head next to it? Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm trying to find this out. This is... Like, like they had headphones then. They were so close. They just got to put that on a little Not stick really. No, no, no. We're, we're, we're talking. We're talking seventy to seventy-six. But they had the big can headphones. That's like the big what are you talking about? That's like that's for people with lots of money who know what a Radio Shack is. We did not have headphones in my house. I my first pair of headphones was a pair of Nova Forties from Radio Shack in nineteen hundred eighty. Was the first. I remember pair of the headphones. little hearing aid things. Do you remember those? Yeah, like, absolutely. It, like for a transistor radio. Right. So, yeah, that, I yeah, mean, right. there wasn't headphones. It looked like, you know, grandma's hearing aid, but you'd shove it into your yeah. ear canal and it would make these terrible little noises into there. And that was on a little, uh, you know, t- twisted pair of wires or whatever going down to the thing. But this pillow speaker sounds crazy. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll find it for you. But, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to, like, you know, overly romanticize this, but, like, I remember the first time that they gave me their old clock radio. And it was really great. It felt like such a grown-up thing. I had my own radio in my room, like, next to my cowboy lamp. I had my, like, I had my radio. And I was obsessed with the radio. So I would just constantly be flipping up and down the dial. Like, you know, I would have songs that I would just be, be completely into. This is circa, it's when my dad was alive, so I'm thinking maybe circa 71, 72. Um, and so, yeah, for the longest time, I just, I really loved AM radio. I listened to it enough to, to become extremely sick of songs when they got played a lot. And that period really went, like, big time through the military school years. I would say my AM 
and kind of my FM period were like that was giant for me up through the beginning of junior high. I started buying 45s in about 1975. I was about nine years old, started buying like, you know, seven inches. So like I, I could go to the department store where my dad worked and buy a Beatles reissue for like 99 cents. Or I could get Convoy by C.W. McCall. I could get, you know, a couple years later, We Will Rock You, We Are the Champions. I could get. And so I was a, uh, you know, listen to what the man said by Wings. Like I owned all of these. Um, but it was really AM radio that would lead me in that way. I pick up the singles, and of course, anytime I went out for pizza, you know, I had to get twenty five cents to play a couple songs on the jukebox. So this this already sounds like a, a difference between us because I think, like, you know, why, why are you such a musical person at such a young age to be so drawn to music that like that you have these memories of this little AM radio and and being excited that it's yours and playing it and listening to the songs and getting sick of them. I I'm thinking that the difference is that music sort of lit up your internal switchboard of your little tiny what was it you know you're seven years old yeah yeah younger like it, it just lit up all the lights on your switchboard uh in a way that you didn't need to think about it and it wasn't sort of like an intellectual thing it's just like it, more so than other people. it was every all little kids like music you see a little you see little infants and toddlers bopping their little butts to like little kitty music like everyone everyone likes music music makes people feel good but i think for some people it lights up more of the lights in their switchboard. All the dials are going up into red. Um, and, you know, they just they just get more out of it. They just play and get more out of it than other people do. So even at a very young age, you're so drawn to music because you're getting more out of it. Other people, it's like, yeah, music is fine. Maybe for some people, that's like something else. Like they get more out of reading or watching mm-hmm. television or playing sports or whatever. But uh, I, I think to have, at least compared to my experience, I like music. Music was fine. There's songs that I like. I like the Muppet Show. I like the musicals. And, you know, like, who doesn't like it? It's great. But I was not sitting there next to a little thing in, in young single-digit ages listening to AM radio and songs and being after like that. And I think that's what has moved you when you got older and you realized these things are for sale and there's names associated with them. Uh-huh. That was tying into sort of your, like, D&D, lots of things to know obsession. Uh, and that... That's like the second phase, like nine years old, buying 45s. Like, I think I, like I said, I think I bought my first, <laughs> my first music. It was like my first set of CDs was uh, 1991, right? The first music I bought for myself. We had 45s in the house. They were my parents. Right. We had LPs. They also belonged to my parents. I think my sister had some stuff. But the idea of me buying music for myself was like, eh, really? You know? Yeah. My, my parents had 45s from the 50s that I would listen to, but it's important. I don't want to, I don't want to make, uh, be overly dramatic about it, but you know, actually, Roderick has talked about this with his parents, and I think this is true with my parents because um, our parents are of relatively similar ages. Like, um, you know, my uh, well, they're older, you know, but you know, John has talked about how you know, he, he, like when he would ask his mom, like, "Were you into the Beatles or whatever?" She'd be like, "My God, no!" Like, I was at a point when I like could have a career and smoke and drink and get married. The last thing I wanted was to listen to teeny bopper music. So, you know, uh, John's family listened to a lot of big band and jazz, and ditto for my family. They were very into like the the post World War II um, white people music, like very into you know the the singers of the time and stuff like that. But but music, I don't think. 
music was a much bigger deal for my dad than my mom. My mom loved music and she sang and she performed and did ice skating and all these different things. But like, I think for my dad, it was a much bigger deal. Maybe that was partly going to Korea. I'm not sure. But he had an extremely strong emotional attachment to certain singers and songs that, that I realized in retrospect carried on to me for whatever reason. But, um, but we did have that around. And, you know, in, the, in this way pre, 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 you know, wide internet age, in the same way that you as a young person might go and sign up for Spotify today and get to listen to whatever, I mean, I was, I was just gobbling up like whatever was on the radio. It was free and you could listen as long as you want. And if you woke up in the middle of the night and you played it quietly, you like, you could just listen to music in the middle of the night. And it was like the greatest thing in the world to me. But yeah, I'm trying to think about how I got into, so it must've been something where like I had an early, I had an affinity Obviously, I like. I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm like freaking Lester Bangs or something. I like kids, kids music too. Uh, and my, you know, what my parents also did like stuff like Gershwin and Copeland and things like that. But you know, but the stuff that I loved, I really loved Wings. I really liked the Beatles. I liked uh, Queen. Um, I, what did I like? I mean, I remember one of the first songs I remember giving me like an oogly feeling in my tummy was "Light My Fire" um, by The Doors. There's something about that that crazy the pop and then that crazy organ at the beginning. It just felt like it came from another planet. I still, I feel, you know, who knows whether this is real, but I still really feel like I remember hearing Light My Fire and being like, this is really weird and cool. And I'm like far from the biggest Doors fan. I really actually don't like the Doors, but Light My Fire still has that effect. And so, you know, one thing is that like so much of my like love of pop music and of like pop sensibility, power pop, like a, a well-crafted pop song, you know, go straight back to that time and just, just inhaling whatever was on the radio at that time, which was a great time for like radio pop music so you know I think that ended up being something I played out over time and for me like listening to Big Star was like eating macaroni and cheese it became like you know comfort food because it was so much like what I loved at this lonely informative age do you think this is distinct from your parents because from your your parents description like music can be about a lot like smells uh, and other things that uh, like sense memory of particular times in your life you could have, a, you know, an attachment to songs that you heard at a certain time of life or if you went off to war, the songs that were around then. Um, but I think that is distinct from being the type of person that is like, you know, it's, it's like being force sensitive. In Star Wars, like being music sensitive mm-hmm. where music can do things to you. Again, that's why I think the young age is important. Music can do things to you to a, not maybe so much different things than it does to other people, but to a larger degree, you are more sensitive to it. It affects you more strongly, which is why when you're a little kid, you're just sitting there listening to music. And like, that's something that most little kids don't do, even though they might like music and get a kick out of it. They're not going to seek it out. They're not going to be like, I need more. Keep feeding it in because every new one of these songs tickles something different in me and sets something off. And part of that, I think is if you are a musical person, as in you are eventually driven to make music and you have that in you, you haven't gotten to that part of it yet so far of you making music, but yeah. like that, I think those things have to go hand in hand because if you want to make music, you probably want to make the thing that's making you feel this way that you're feeling and you want to understand this thing and you are sensitive to it and you can get better at it because you understand the difference between good and bad versus sort of the rest of the population, which enjoys music and might enjoy making music and might enjoy singing. But for them, it's just another one of those leisure time activities or things that they can feel that doesn't stand out from the rest. And I, known a lot of musical people in my life and they seem to live this different life that's like in the same way that you might think someone who is like super into math leads this different life of the mind where they're constantly thinking about math and viewing the world through that lens people who are heavily into music 
lead this different life life of music where they're it's like they can see colors that we can't right or they see they see them more brightly um and i think where this starts to get interesting is when you are when you get old enough where it starts to occur to you that maybe you would like to make some of that music too because i think there is well i'll I'll let you continue but like Uh how how does that play out how does how do you start getting the idea that you would like to make music too that's a, a really good question because the funny part is that impulse was virtually non-existent for most of the time. And, you know, I'm trying to think of analogies that aren't too, you know, fatuous, but like, you know, it's almost like if you've grown, like, think about if you've grown up in a house, like you described the way that you grew up in your house and you would make sauce, like spaghetti sauce, or, you know, was, was making food kind of a community event in your house sometimes? Yeah, that, that one thing is an example. Mostly not, but yeah, the but I mean, know, everybody's got a community activity. Yeah, or pe- like everyone goes around to make the particular thing that you make at Christmas, and you have to all sit around and, and make little uh, things out of dough, or you know, making gnocchi by hand, or something else that right. is labor intensive, where it's all hands on deck. But I mean, like you know, then look at something like like putting up the Christmas tree or whatever it is. But there's some kinds of like things that you do, you know. Um, I don't know. I'm probably getting off track here. But I guess I guess like there are certain kinds of things where I'm trying to make a pivot to thinking about the way people think about food today and how like, you know, there was there's always been cookbooks and there's always been recipes, but like it's only real I feel like it's only in the last 15 or 20 years that there's this entire giant subculture about being just shy of a chef. Like that, that didn't used to be a thing for most people. People would buy the Julia Child book, or they buy you know uh, the Kilborn book, or you know whatever, and they'd go out and they'd make recipes. But they wouldn't really think of themselves as being in the cooking culture. They would still mostly consider themselves a consumer of food, and they didn't feel the need to have a blog about it. Not that that's bad, but like there was a time when most people still thought of themselves as laypersons when it came to food, and you know it's. But then, then, of course, there are the people who just feel that drive from a very young age where it's like, well, why would I do anything but do this? Like, this seems like such an obvious thing. Now, for me, I was very much a, a consumer of music. And I want to separate this into kind of three parts because there's the music that you listen to with your ears. Um, there's the creation of that music with, with your hands. And then there's the whole culture around the music that you enjoy. And so, like, for me, there was very little hint of anything approaching the culture of the music I liked until pretty close to, say, like, maybe uh, maybe late elementary school. And even then, it was mostly like, we're really into La Freak, or we're really into the Village People, or a bunch of us like ELO, or whatever the weird band we all liked. A bunch of us really liked Queen. But it didn't have a lot of, like, there were not meetings about it. You know what I mean? We just all really liked this one song. On the bu- school bus, we would all sing along with You Light Up My Life, and that's something that everybody did. You would be an animal if you were not singing along on that beautiful song. So do you understand what I mean about the three parts? Because I think the critical jump is between being a consumer, a rabid consumer of music on the one hand, and then being an even tentative creator of music on moving toward the other end. In between is the like, oh, I found other people who like this too. And I think that's, that's, that's a critical jump where that's where a lot of people start thinking about, hey, I might like this more than I thought, and I might even want to go make this even though I don't know how. And for me, that didn't really enter into it so much. I guess Kiss Army was a thing in, like, maybe fifth grade. But no, for me, like, that leap was not even beginning to happen. And and this is even setting aside the fact that I was playing instruments in bands, and I just – I happened to hate it. Should I talk about that? 
Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, did your parents right. have you like learn an instrument uh, as as a sort of formal activity? Did you have to take piano lessons? Did you have some kind of music lessons that you didn't like? Was was this disassociated to you from your love of uh, like the Beatles and Queen? I had three elementary age formal um, music band things that I did, and they were uniformly a shit show. Um, I think probably the first one was I'm going to say. Th- third or fourth grade my mom really wanted me to play an instrument it was after my father passed away and uh i don't know it was uh, it was important to her that i play an instrument and i i was really into the idea of playing saxophone but mrs Philippart, yes her name was mrs Philippart, had already filled the role of every sax player and all that was left for me was trombone so we rented a trombone and i practiced and i went womp 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 i didn't like it i hated the practice i hated the music it was desperately dull I uh, hated it, hated it, hated it. I stuck with it just long enough for it to not be an indignity when I finally stopped doing it. Were you any good at it? No. I did not have any natural affinity for it. I ha- for, the my- in- for the instrument, you think? Or was it like, this is what I'm sussing out. Like your first yeah, yeah, experience yeah. of like, I'm going to make music. Is it because I am bad at the trombone? Or is it because the act of making music doesn't come naturally to me. Like, does it, did, uh, yeah, did you get a right. sense for like, I mean, my, my big thing is like, did you have any rhythm? Like, could well, you keep time? Could, that's did another, you understand yeah, it's it's another good question. But you know, once you start playing, trying to play an instrument, you know, you realize the, how many different pieces there are to it. And so like, not to be boring about it, but like, if you're playing a trombone, you've got this instrument in the case of a trombone, like most instruments, especially a trombone, like just to make a note, you there are two giant parts to that. One is that your embouchure, like the way your mouth is on the thing to make the sound, and then like where you are with the slidey trombone part. It's pretty tricky to get. It's very hard, and even when you get it right, it still kind of sounds like a trombone. It's pretty boring. Another giant piece before we even get to rhythm is just my first forays into music theory. So having to learn like you know whatever, an E and a B, and like where that is and what that means. I found it completely uninteresting. I found it completely dull. And Did it make sense to you, the it, music theory part of it? I could tell like, did you, I could did tell you start that it, to see the shape of things, or was no, it just like, oh, this no, is a no. rote thing that I'm just There learning. was never any John Nash moment here. I mean, I, I understood that the system I was being taught made sense in the same way that I understood like learning times tables. I knew that there was a sensibility to it. If, if I stuck to it, it was just incredibly dull, trying to remember, is this a natural or a flat? Like, what's the difference? Having to practice that, I had no interest or affinity in that, and it just wasn't fun to do. Um, and plus, I had to carry it on the bus, and it was really big. But all that aside, there's nothing about it that clicked, because even if it worked great, we were still playing Little Brown Jug poorly and slowly. It was really not fun. It was, you know, it just wasn't, uh, I, there was not any, it's just, you know, it's it's advanced kindergarten like it's a bunch of little kids in a room and you just mostly want them to sit still but i don't know if that answers your question but i i I didn't enjoy it i didn't have an affinity did you know other people of a similar age who made the breakthrough at that point because i definitely did i absolutely did like kids who like learned piano at around the same age that everyone else was learning to blat their way into a trumpet or try to make some sort of uh, woodwind instrument and make a noise that wasn't a horrible squawk. Yeah, we should jump to accordion in a minute because around that age, <laughs> around that age is well. when my second best friend, the son of our minister, was basically a prodigy. Uh, I mean, and prodigy not in the sense of like, oh, he's a natural genius. He had tried really hard and he practiced a lot. And he played piano 
in a way that just it just blew my mind. And we were the two guys in, in choir who liked to sing the alto parts. So we would figure out what the alto parts to be able to sing. We both loved to sing. And uh, Eric uh, was just a desperately talented, handsome, athletic guy. The way you act about me, like, that's Eric. Eric was that guy. You know, Eric, Eric was like kissing girls in like sixth grade. Like he really had it going on. And he was the preacher's kid. So, but I think about him, I think, I think about a lot of my, like some of the girls were suddenly getting good at gymnastics around fourth. So the, I think trombone was third grade around fourth and into fifth grade, like everything started blowing up. And that's, that's the beginning of the explosion to me in like, wow, some of these people are just really desperately capable at this. Some people can throw a spiral. Like that's crazy. You know what I mean? Some of some of these people can like uh, do uh, do karate. It's like <laughs> when did they learn that? So no, but so that was the year of uh, that was the year of accordion. How, how did you feel about your singing? You just mentioned singing. How did you feel about your singing uh, voice? Is that something you feel like you? Uh you had sussed out like I, I was good. I was good for a nine year old. I mean, like I'm not a great singer by any stretch, but like I was really good for a nine year old because I could I, Eric and I could suss out the harmonies that made everything sound so much better. And like you know, I think the teachers thought we were a little bit of a nuisance. The the the, the music, um, what do they call it? The music minister. Like we were probably kind of annoying to be little kids trying to sing harmonies when that's they just wanted us to sing. You know, oh, there's so many great songs. I can still sing so many of those songs. Um, but I was not self-conscious about my voice at all. Did that seem like a less significant thing than the people who could play piano really well? It's like, oh, well, yeah, yeah. sure, I can sing, but that's just basically like talking. Two, with two the, orders of magnitude know. less interesting, yeah. So you hadn't like, you hadn't sort of assigned, this is something that happens with family life, like known families who like come up in musical families where the singing is something that they all do and that it's seen as just as, just as sacred it is and important as playing the musical instruments, which they all do as well. Whereas when you're a kid, it just sounds like fancy talking, which is so much easier. It seems so much easier, especially if you can do it, than learning piano or trumpet or trombone. Or like, well, that is hard. But singing, like, oh, that just you just do it. Like, it's yeah, no, nobody right. in our church, nobody didn't sing. Right, and and like sing, you know, everyone thinks they can make noises with their mouth that they call singing but actually being actually making notes that sound like the notes like i mean the easy way to tell for even a little kid is like you just record them singing and play it back to them and if they make a face it's like yeah that's what you actually sound like you can't sing kid um but other people can sing and you play it back to them like yeah that's what i was singing that's a song that's that is the song i was singing it's stupid it's not it's not like playing the piano but like i feel like for especially for young people don't don't assign value to being able to sing equal to being able to play an instrument, even though I would wager that it is easier to get someone to learn to play the piano impressively than it is to get someone who can't sing be able to sing. Oh, I mean, well, you know, even the results of, I don't know, I mean, I'm, this is super general, but yeah, the results of somebody who is in the 85th percentile as a pianist versus the 85th percentile as a singer the the piano person's going to come off way more interesting i think yeah uh but I, that's that's why i think like kids don't assign much value right? so you've got instruments that you hate that are just like that, that it sound like homework times tables is exactly the analogy Ugh. i was thinking of like i know a lot of people who had to learn instruments or, or tried to learn instruments when they were kids and it, it was just treated like times tables in the same way that you don't understand like the underlying like <laughs> Shape of numbers and just like look, right, just no, exactly. How to do Six long division? Times nine how to do this is thing. fifty-four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just and th and that's just what you do and go to the concert and play your little thing. And then there are the kids who are like, actually, this is a system. You guys don't see it, but I see the outlines of it, and that's why. Like the kids who like 
became, you know, what you say, like piano whizzes. Like they started learning Little Brown Jug on the piano and someone explained to them the notes and everything. And then eventually they're like, wait a second. And they started right. to see the underlying shape of how music works. And it's like all these keys in the keyboard, it's not just this big undifferentiated sea of black and white. There is a system here. You know, I can understand how the system works. And it's not when I'm transposing music. Oh, you want me to shift that up or down? No problem. Right. It's not like I'm doing multiplication tables in my head. It's like, no, 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 you don't see the shape of the whole system. And some people just right. intuitively get that and some people don't. It sounds to me like at this age, at least, you were not intuitively getting that, even no. though you were kind of intuitively getting that about singing, because not as, maybe there's less to know. But knowing the existence of harmony, being able to pull it off, that's like even one step above, here are the notes, can you sing them? Because, again, right. I think there are far fewer people in the world who can sing the actual notes than there are who can well, be taught I, you know, to I don't want to I don't want to make too much of big I'm not saying I was great at it but like we were definitely in the mi- in a minority of people who thought it was not only fun but kind of cool to to be able to sing these songs and come up with something like an arrangement um, and Eric Eric was the leader on that like I was just following what he came up with but like to be able to be in a room even with I mean it sounds silly but a room where 20 kids are singing in unison and then suddenly a couple little kids are singing a harmony. It's like it's you're right back in the sound of music, you know. I mean, which a movie? It was a movie, that, a silly movie that I still find very moving. But like hearing sil- children singing in harmony can be really oddly moving, and like I could feel it. I could feel it in my heart. I could feel it like the the tiny little soft hairs on the back of my neck would would perk up when we did that. And uh, yeah, so yeah, then we got to accordion. <laughs> This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Harry's. Harry's. Harry's offers high-quality razors and blades for a fraction of the price of the big razor brands. So shoot yourself right over to harrys.com and make sure to use that promo code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S, to save $5 off your first purchase. Here's the story. Gather around, children. Harry's was started by two guys who wanted a better product without paying an arm and a leg. So they make their own blades from their own factory, an old blade factory in the old country of Germany. They like the place so much they bought it. They literally bought a factory. These are high-quality, high-performing German blades crafted by shaving experts. They give you a better shave that respects your face and your wallet. Great part is Harry's offers factory direct pricing at a fraction of the cost of the big brands. Harry's blades are actually about half the price of what you would pay. Plus, you don't have to wait around for some kid to bail your costly blades out of the drugstore Supermax Razor Prison. Mm-mm-mm. I don't think so. You order your hairy stuff, and they ship it directly to your door. Boom, shaving, done, sorted. The starter set is an amazing deal. For $15, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream or gel, three razor blades, and when you need more blades, they're just $2 each or less. An eight-pack is just $15. A 16-pack is just $25. This is out of control. Harry's blades are comparable to maybe the Fusion Blades made by a company that rhymes with Schmillette. Best price you see on Amazon for those today is around 40 bucks. 12 Harry's Blades are only $20. Again, half the price. Great packaging. Nice heavy handle. Classy designs all around. With Harry's, you get the convenience and ease of ordering online. High quality blades. Great handle and shaving cream. And excellent customer service at about half the price of the big boys. So get started today with that set. That includes a handle, three blades, and shaving cream or gel for just $15 shipped to your door. You go to harrys.com and use that promo code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S, to save $5 off your first purchase. Our thanks to Harry's, Harry's, for all the great shaves and for supporting reconcilable differences. 
So was accordion still in the realm of instruments that someone made you play that you didn't want to that were really difficult in terms of dexterity and technique? I feel like my family has two, historically, at least two low thresholds. One is we have a low threshold for celebration. It never took that much in our family to go, let's go out to eat. And it also never took that much. We had a low threshold um, for, for interest and commitment. And then this might not be right, but like my mom was trying to do the best for me. She could. She was really trying to do her best. And somehow we heard about this place where you rent an accordion and then you go there on Saturday mornings and you play accordion. I don't want to drag this out, but basically we did that right at the beginning of the, I want to say, 1977 TV season. So I did not get to see like the new Batman show. I was robbed of tons of great TV. That was really what I lived for at that point. But uh, yeah, you get an accordion and you practice at home. You practice accordion at your home. And it's it's hard. It's like piano, like plus another piano. Like but the gotta... payoff is not as big as a piano because even oh, if you were God, a super no. expert accordion player, what you have is accordion music. If it goes well, you're in a room. You're in a stinky room with 15 kids playing accordion on a Saturday morning. It's <laughs> I just I did not get into it. Like I we so it included lessons. Like a little bit of solo lessons plus uh, the group lessons, and really, you know, the same as any other failed, in, you know, instrument thing a kid has ever had. It's like, ugh, like this is this instrument sucks. Like I don't want to play this. I don't want to carry this. Um, and I, I maybe, did. Maybe if you had a background where your parents were playing accordion music that was like meaningful to them, then you could make the sounds that made your parents' dials all light up. But if that, if you or don't if it's, have or that if it's context, what I had heard, like I, I was not listening to like what Tommy Shaw. I was not listening to big band trombone music. I did not have a tromboner. I was not interested. That was pretty funny. Um, and, and ditto for accordions. Like, what's accordions to me? Accordions to me in 1977 is Lawrence Welk. Like, it. Like what? why yeah. would I want to do that? So, But, you know, we did it. We stuck with it. I did it for, the abs- again, the absolute minimal, dignified amount of time before I quit. And, uh, and there was only one more after that, which was Drum and Bugle Corps which was was the third and final shit show which was like well my mom's my mom's friend's son does this and it's keeping him off drugs and it's great <laughs> and you go to drum and bugle corps and you can either play you got two options you can play drums or you can play bugle and uh, bugle's really trumpet right so i'm supposed to learn trumpet all you need to know about this to know everything about me is that the guy who ran the place was totally whiplash like 100% <laughs> whiplash i mean he was so goddamn angry at like nine to 13 year old kids. And you know me, you can guess how like 11 year old me or 10 year old me felt about that. I was horrified. I cried and I begged to not have to go back. We had to learn to march. We had to learn. I was trying, trying to learn trumpet, having never played trumpet. Oh no, this is one of those like, like make it with your wiener out in math class dreams. I show up, they hand me a trumpet. They put sheet music. I can't read in front of me. I don't know what the keys are. I don't, I mean, I don't know what key, I don't know any of this. And you're supposed to just kind of follow along. It's, it's really like dropping the baby into the deep end of the pool. And it was just t- totally the wrong thing for me. And so that was very short-lived. This is really boring. But that, that, that's, that's why it was hard for me to get into music for a long time. It was like it was never the right fit, never the right like, group. The closest I got, now that I think about it, was you know, singing in choir. And um, what do we call it then? Chorus. Yeah, singing in chorus. All right. So how do you? So you've got these instruments that are annoying that you do that you're not don't have an affinity for, don't have a particular dexterity for, don't enjoy. Yeah. You've got singing, which you do enjoy, which comes naturally to you, and you kind of take for granted. I would imagine at this point. I got, uh, I got, you, I got music theory, which is making zero sense to me. Uh, right. And you're still you're still listening to and enjoying music, and it's an important thing. How do you make the leap to whatever your first crappy band was? 
Well, um, so you got to flash forward a pretty long time, but like I continue to really love music and like, like anybody who loves music a lot, like well, I, I imagine, like I have so, my memory's so poor for so many things, but there's so many songs, like when I hear the song, I'm just transported and I'm like, ah, oh, I was in my grandparents' bedroom in 1978 and hearing the Pina Colada song or whatever, or 79, whatever that was. But I mean, like, I have very specific recollections of, of those things. Like, that was really in my bones, was loving music. So, you, like, you name a year, and I can pretty much tell you, like, what I was into, maybe even by season. That's true through military school into eighth grade, the Hall & Oates years, uh, ninth grade, getting real into The Who. At ninth grade, not even so much into The Who yet. Ninth grade was still a lot of, like, FM pop. Tenth grade was huge for me because tenth grade is when I became a little more of a bad kid, a little more of a problem kid. I, I got a girl to like me for the first time and kissed somebody, and I wanted to play guitar. And so that was a dangerous quarter. And so that's when I was really into The Who. I was very into being a nonconformist. Um, getting more and more into like like heavy FM album rock, even as I still love pop music. And then I got a guitar for my 16th birthday. So there's a little extra motivation now because it's not your parents making you play this instrument. The guitar is inherently cool. Uh, the things you can play with it are the music that you were into and girls like it. And so I would imagine you are extremely motivated to become proficient in a way that you are not motivated to learn how to buzz your lips the right way to make the sound. Yes, of the yeah, everything but the girl part. I mean, I, I was, I've always been super into girls, unfortunately. But like, no, I, I never bought into that mythology about getting girls. That's just absolutely never been true in my experience. It was more like the other guys liked it. Girls um, like guitars too. Well, girls no, like girls like anyone who can play music. Uh, girls like drummers. Girls quality, like drummers. Right? Get real. But the um, <laughs> drummers, come on. Well, they like drummers and musicians. Singers. So, the singers probably have it over. Them. No, you don't way. know what you're talking about. The bass players and the drummers, man. But uh, but anyway, I got this. I, what I did know was, and this has been talked about at length uh, with Roderick, is you know that feeling of playing the tennis racket and like wanting to be, you're like the kid in the Kinks video, in the Come Dancing video. Like I knew I wanted to, whatever Pete Townsend was feeling, like I wanted to feel that. I, I, I could tell that there was something very special happening. You wanted to make the guitar face. Well, like when you see Pete Townsend circa 1970 and he, you listen to like, just like take something as basic and simple and ridiculously obvious as won't get fooled again. So when Pete Townsend jumps up in the air and plays these notes, like he's, what could be simpler and dumber in the entire world than him jumping up in the air, doing a jumping jack and like coming down super hard on this little slide, a whole note slide. But it's like one of the most rock and roll things you've ever heard in your life. I can't defend rock and roll to people, but what I will tell you is if you love rock and roll, you know whatever that guy's feeling when he's in that jumping jack in midair, I want to feel that. So it was partly about wanting to make music. It was not about wanting to write music. It was about just wanting to be in that culture, like to be part of that, to get closer to that, because it, it felt real and important. And the, the, the band thing wouldn't really come so much till a little later, but like I... I found it like very difficult to learn guitar, but I was pretty dogged about it. Um, it's very hard. I had a really crappy guitar with terrible intonation. Like anybody, I struggled to keep it in tune. I, initially, I think I, I had an amp and then it broke in a couple of days. This used amp, my dumb friend sold me. But um, Wait, is it acoustic guitar your first guitar? No, no, it was like a, a, a fifth hand, really crappy like sub Sears guitar. 
It's like a twenty dollar so, guitar, yeah. So then you're playing that with no amp, just the little right. strings tinkling away. Yep, 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 yep. And but importantly, like I mean, like I, this, this I'm pretty sure I, rem- I hope this isn't my like you know biopic mis mis memory, but going to I want to say probably record bar, music land, one of those places in the mall that that would also sell sheet music. I bought a little like kind of how to learn guitar book. And I bought a very tiny little book, a fake book of Beatles songs. And I just made myself learn those and made my fingers do what the little picture said. To this day, I still play my D chords wrong because I learned them wrong in 1982. So to this day, if you see me play a D D chord, my forefinger and my middle finger are in the wrong place. And it looks totally freaky. What what fingers are you using? Um, Do you know a D chord? Yeah. Okay. So, oh yeah. So you play guitar. So imagine an open D. And you've got your middle finger on the high E, right? The high E string. Mm-hmm. So make that finger. And now, now flip, <laughs> flip and, and make, <laughs> put, put them in the, in the other, wait, I got to do this on an actual guitar. Basically, <laughs> yeah, I, just, got, I got my fingers backwards and I still play it wrong to this day. I do that with the G where I do it like, oh, I don't know if it's wrong, but I do, I do the G with like, I th- some people do the G where they, where you can go right from the G into uh, a C or an F without moving the top two fingers, like without without repositioning them. Yeah, where you, where you doing... play like the E and the B, you keep your fingers on the E and the B at the third fret. Yeah, and then you just. But I do it the other way, where I, if I go from a G to a C, I got to switch everything around entirely. I think I've got a guitar here. Um, yeah, but anyway, like so, you are. It's not coming natural to you, but you are determined to make this work because the result is even if you're playing these silly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, play just the, the right chords in the right sequence and maybe just do a couple modifications that it starts to sound like something that you recognize as music in more of a way than you playing the trombone or the accordion. So you're just going to you're just going to be there. Yeah, I mean, that's of no course the, that's that's, you know, in terms of this like Larry King thing we're doing right now, that makes sense. But no, this is more like my black helicopter, like my helicopters while I'm stirring the sauce phase. Like it really feels like things are falling apart. Like I'm, I'm becoming very, as much as I still, you know, love my mother. Like I was very much becoming my own very weird person and all kinds of things were tearing me in directions that, uh, I didn't even need to understand what they were. I just knew that they were happening. And it was all kind of happening really, really quickly after, you know, a lot of bottled up stuff was starting to explode. And I, it wasn't even like I thought, you know, it's really important to understand, like, people who tell you that they thought they were going to do this and they knew they were going to do that, like, bullshit. Like, for me, it was just more like, all I know is I want to make this guitar make a Beatles song. And, like, there was no thought of anything else. All that mattered was, was that me sitting in a room, I could someday in the next few months, maybe in tune play say hey jude not a hard song if i could play hey jude on the guitar all the way through without having to stop i would consider that a huge victory or like being able to like even just figure out the riff for like pictures of matchstick men or stuff like that and so our friends like i started getting guitar magazines occasionally more often we would give each other we would trade hand-drawn uh tablature like with each other about here's the chords to the song you trade them in the hallways and so that's like how I learned Pinball Wizard, which was like once I could start to play guitar, all I did was just play Pinball Wizard over and over. The beginning of that. Were you uh, singing? Like, if you were doing Hey Jude in your room, were you also doing the song, the singing part of it while you played through? That's a high level of difficulty. No, I was just trying not to break the B string, get hit in the eye. <laughs> you're just staring at your fingers on the <laughs> right. frets, right? Right. No, no. Seriously, I'm like I'm like the drunk guy on the highway, just like keep looking at the road. Yeah. No, the, the singing thing at that point eh, wasn't as big a deal. 
But like, you know, and, and then just, just in terms of like some relevance, like that, this is two years into my utter obsession with the Beatles. Where like, you know, I own probably six Beatles records, mostly compilations at that point. But I was completely obsessed with the Beatles right around the time John Lennon died. Unfortunately, I got into the Beatles and got, I got my stereo Christmas of uh, 1980. So I got my stereo and the John and Yoko solo record like three weeks after he died. And like, that was right around the time I was just getting super into the Beatles. So I'm sorry, this is apropos of nothing, but, but that's, what's driving me that, that this is all like, um, kindling inside of this, this great furnace that I didn't understand was all these different forces coming together and like these pop songs and these rock songs and like, you know, and then feeling more and more like this sense of like, what group do I want to be associated with? Like, I think I kind of want to be with the guys with round glasses who like sixties bands, you know? So you're still not in a band yet. You're still haven't formed oh, a band. No, 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 no. Or anything like that. So when does that happen? Um, I mean, I didn't. I would play with my friends, or I would watch them play. But I mean, I don't know. It's like I guess pinball or break dancing or whatever. Where like mostly you just watch for a long time because you're not even up to the standard where you would want to put your chops in front of other people. And so I'd watch my friends like rehearse in an empty church or something. Um, but like I don't think. I had anything close to like performing with other people until really as late as I want to say 10th grade. I started dicking around with my friends. So like, I'm trying, I don't think I had like a, we never played a gig. The first real band where I played in front of people was uh stage band, jazz band in 12th grade. What was the first band that it was not affiliated with school that had a name that you were in where we actually played in front of people. No, you don't have to play in front of people. Because I think that's the first step is you form a band with your friends, you right. give the band a name, people have roles in the band, and you never play in front yeah. of people. All you, do, all you do is play with each other in someone's basement. There was, there was a furtive gesture to create a band-like thing in 10th or 11th grade, and I think we were called Holy Grail. <laughs> that's, this is the best part, hearing the band names. <laughs> oh, no, it gets so much worse. I know, I know. I know it's coming. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we tried to play... And it was like, my friend was really not good at drums, and I was really not good at guitar. And my friend who had a synthesizer, God love him, was not that great at synthesizer. And so we would get the sheet music to Don't Let It End by Sticks or, uh, or something like that and like try and like bang our way through it. Not super successful. You know what? One thing at the same time, uh, my friend Sam, who played sax, he was like a second chair in uh, alto sax in stage band. I, I would stay at his house a lot on the weekends. That's the guy whose Atari I would play. You'll remember. Um, Sam and I would play a lot together. He'd play, I'd play guitar, he'd play sax, and we, we'd get the sheet music to Toto's Africa and play it together, and it was really fun. But like, no, I mean, like that, that, that Holy Grail abortive band, we never played anywhere. There's a funny story about a terrible live band experience I had in 12th grade. It wasn't until college that I had my first, I think, that I had my first real band where we had rehearsals and equipment and played for people. Yeah. My, All right. So my second, sec, second, well, kind of first year, but second year was my first real, real band. We don't want to skip all the way to that one. Are there any other band names that we're overlooking between yes. high school and college? Let's hear. Them. Oh God! Let's and see. who picked them? Did you come up with any? Of oh, I was you great, man. I'm a machine. I am great at naming things. All right. Um, uh, my, I, we wanted to have. A, I think this is actually a real punk band now. But in 1984 or five, we thought of having a band called a punk band called Free Beer because we thought we could put that on a poster and people would come. Holy so, Grail! So clever. Yeah, my mom said, well, you, you sure you really want that to be the kind of people who come and see your band? If only you had called it free as in beer. You could have been ahead of your time. Um, I'm trying to uh, see. You press me. I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. There, rest assured that there were many, many terrible 
see, here's the thing is like, th- this is like a weird, uh, busted ass adolescent semiotic thing. You're so much better at coming up for, at, with names for things than actually making things. And like, yeah, that's, that's half the fun. You form the band, you decide right. who's in it, you decide what the roles are and you come up with a name and then you're done. Well, you talk about what you're not. Like we're, yeah. we're definitely not going to be like Eurythmics or like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and you, you have this entire, this litany, this catalog of all the things that you're not going to be, but you've never actually finished a song all the way through. And you've never played in front of anybody. Well, right. Of course yeah. not. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But, um, but you know, and then, but the, the also the interesting thing about, oh, this is so boring. Um, 10th and 11th grade was a very interesting time for me though, also, because it was a weird crossover time for me where like, I think I mentioned before how like what? Eighth to eleventh grade, eighth to tenth grade was very interesting in terms of non-music culture. Where, where that's where I was like, you know, making friends with D and D, having some real like strange friends that where I was their only friend, or like you know, there's all these weird things. And then it was around tenth grade that it became about the music. Tenth grade is where like I officially accepted the mantle of music being my thing. That you know, where I was you know, you know, dr- drawing band logos on like every folder. And that was, I wanted you to know that I was that guy. I was the weirdo outsider guy who wore his members only jacket with the epaulets unsnapped. And I was, I was, cause I was like Pete Townsend. <laughs> I was a rebel just like Pete Townsend. <laughs> um, no, but the band stuff didn't. And then in college, I, I had a band I liked a lot in college. I don't, can't think of any other names. I wish I could serve you with some more terrible names, but. Well, well so what's the first college band then? So then, so high school ended with a whimper. At that point, I was super into U2. U2 was absolutely my favorite band. Are we going to talk about you? Biggest band in the world. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we to, I think we have to finish your musical journey, speaking of U2. Um, is that a reference? It's a musical journey. Beautiful fine furniture. Different reference. Always after me, U2 references. Uh, no, but I think like the second year of college, the first year of college, I was like kind of like playing at open mics and stuff like that, doing REM covers or whatever. And um, this is 1986. You're there with what? Acoustic guitar and yep. singing? Yep. yep. You, you, you going full Joko, just doing the rounds? Yeah. Or like, a you know, like, oh, like me and my friend Steve, we'll, we'll do a cover of like Swan Swan Hummingbird together, like a current, <laughs> a current hit of the band. Um, uh-huh. But mostly playing stuff from like murmur and reckoning and what else I'm trying to think what else i was really into when then. you were when you were singing that were you doing a michael stipe impression or were you singing the song i was singing well no i was singing it in my own reedy sharp voice but also with what i imagined the lyrics were <laughs> yeah that's part of the R&M experience. i'm up to pie on katie bars of kitchen signs but not me and- what 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 does that mean <laughs> You're up to pie, you're up to pie on Katie bars. What's that mean? Just gotta you just gotta eat your words a little bit more. Just mumble <laughs> enough and it, it it sells. I'm the sun and you're not there. We could. Oh, thank God I didn't. Thank God I didn't do an REM lyrics website. I love I love hearing me. about you like finding like the best version of YouTube lyrics and then correcting them and like trying to refine like transcribing lyrics is really hard and REM would have killed me. YouTube is hard enough because they got the accent and they're they're yelling and mumbling all the time. But REM, it's like you don't have a leg to stand on. Like you you can't even try to back back solve based on like the logic of what the sentence structure. Well, and then when might you find be. out when you find out what the lyrics eventually find out what they really were, here's what you might find out. Oh, that was actually the proper name of a surrealist photographer from the 1930s right and you're trying to phonetically sound it out or even if it's like a sentence like 
it is the the least sensible thing. You try to sound it out phonetically, well, that can't be it because that doesn't make any sense. So right. it's got to be something else. And you come up with the sentence, and then you find out years later, like that's the worst thing. Like you're like, oh, I'll just wait until they put it in the liner notes when the <laughs> CDs come out. And the liner notes lyrics, I don't know who writes those, but this is the thing that always kills me about bands. We're on a sidetrack a bit here, but like that as a band, I guess you don't have control because like the record labels do this or whatever. But right. you would put out an album. And it would have liner notes that would have lyrics in it, and the lyrics are not the lyrics to the song. Oh, I hate that! At, oh, that drives me crazy. That used to drive me nuts. Like, how can you sleep at night knowing that you put out a recording of this song that you poured your heart and soul into, and that people are going to look at the liner notes and think you were singing these words when you weren't? And, um, and how does that happen? How do you say? How do you? It's like, a, It's got to be a similar phenomenon to send us your deck. Like, it's got to be something where, like, there was a disconnect between, like, maybe the lyrics got sent in in time to produce the uh, the art while they were still recording and it changed or something like I mean, that. Maybe the band doesn't care. Or, like, the other thing I can think of is, like, authors. You don't get to pick the cover image on your book. Mm. You get to write the book, but the publisher picks the, you know, not, I don't want to get too close to home. Pussy, too Pussy Willis. But, it, uh, but even for things just like, you know, like novels, where Stephen King, I, I would imagine, still doesn't get to pick the covers of his novels. He sends the novel to the publisher, they pick the cover. And he's right, like, how right. can you live in a world where your novel has, but at least all the words are his but yeah so the the liner lyrics for u2 and rem albums and probably every album ever are just filled with lies you're right it could have been that those were the lyrics as written but not what were sung into the microphone or it could have been someone listened to the recording and tried to sound it out and just made up BS. oh my god and what a horrible thought that, that's that always looks what it looks like to me because i'm like i know this is not what bono was saying yellow song, like, I have 17, a I have 17 live versions of the song and it's, <laughs> it enunciates clearly in every live version it's 100 percent consistent and here's the demo tape same word consistent but the album version it sounds like he's mumbling this and the liner notes sounds like someone listened to the album version and transcribed anyway wait a minute gloria celsius ronnie james dio that's not right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't when they go Latin. When they go just, Latin, right, right, it's right. Really, I mean, at least you have a leg to stand on. Like, well, Latin, I can. That's got to be translatable to something, so I can, I can back solve. But REM is just that. Just for free, what it's worth, association. The video for that song, way overplayed in the early days of MTV, was absolutely my introduction to YouTube. Just for what it's worth. I barely remember that video. All right, oh my we, god, we're, we're on, on, a, on a barge and he had the big hair? You don't remember that? Oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's like the cover of uh, October, same barge. It is right? in like when Adam had like his like weird blonde fro. Yeah, the big poofy thing. Yeah, I know I know what the band looks like in that era. I'm just trying to think of, yeah. of the video, but I'm, I'm thinking it must have been the same settings as the photography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The they probably did it all on the same day. And there's like it's just basically them in a barge doing Gloria, and then there's a bunch of kids on the shore and some camera shots of them standing there. All right, so I'm sorry to sidetrack you. So you got your college band. Uh, you, you know, you're doing open, you're doing the open mics. You're playing REM at the open mics. So you're actually out there playing in front of people. You are dealing with whatever it is that you need to deal with to get yourself to go in front of a bunch of people and say, hi, I'm Merlin. I'm going to play some songs for you. Play them and then swan, leave. Swan, swan, hummingbird. Hurrah, we're all free now. What so noisy what you, you, cats are we? Did you have any thoughts in your head as like this? I, I, again, you were getting back to before, like yeah. that you were not sort of thinking about things you were just doing what came natural to do or what you felt like you needed to do without sort of intellectualizing it about a lot but uh, didn't, these I, open mic things were you thinking this is a thing i'm gonna do with my life or is this a hobby that i'm oh, indulging in or am no, i no, going no, no, to be no. a musician when i quote unquote grow up like what were you were you thinking about any of this uh, god this would take like 15 episodes because uh, first and second year of college was also like another giant explosion which was like whereas i had in in kind of my last year of high school but really my gap year my bye year my lost year the year of 85 and 86 
Um, that for me was the explosion into punk rock and indie rock where I went from like merely liking these two REM albums to like being like, no, like I need to go find more of this music from this college or community radio station. So 85 to 86 was totally the punk rock year for me where I got way into all the usual suspects, you know, dead Kennedys and Husker do black flag. Um, and just like, you know, fishbone, like all these bands that were, I was just like, I just cannot get enough of this. Um, and then the, of course the next year, uh, going to college, like it's like that David Sedaris anecdote about like, you know, from many years ago about saying like, you know, he used to be the brooding artsy kind of pseudo goth guy in his school. And then he went to college and like, there was not only like 10 guys like that, but he was like the least good of them. <laughs> right. Where you go somewhere and there's the avatar of you that already exists and they're better than you. And that's, that's how I, I went there. And I was just, it was overwhelming to me because these were people who had lived in New York, people wearing Def Jam shirts in 1986. It's like, these were people who were like, had really deep catalog in like everything that I had been dabbling in. And so for me now you're exchanging tapes with each other. My friend, Michael Ferguson. Hi, Michael. Like basically he was my, he was my rabbi and my guru. Um, he just made me transformative mixtapes in, in my first year of college that opened up huge worlds to me. So, so many of the bands that to this day are my favorite band I learned about from Michael. Like, well, you know, whether it's The Fall or Pylon or like there's just all of these bands were like, oh my God, this just has opened my eyes uh, listening to these bands. So first year of college, giant for me in terms of like sudden exposure to all this stuff that I barely understood before. Is this going to be gibberish to people who don't know these things? This, this can be gibberish, maybe a little no, bit. No, we're, we're. I think we're we're getting to the heart of this here because uh, well, you kind of you kind of talked around my question, which was when you were making yourself go out there and oh, perform in front of people. Were you conceptualizing what? How were you conceptualizing what you're doing? Did you consider it recreation? Did you consider it merely an outlet, or did you think you were you trying on for size an outfit that you think maybe this is what I will do with my life is play music in front of people. In, like now, I mean, what's that? What is that? What's that genre? Is it Sacred Harp? What's the music where people get in a circle and sing, like the shape note singing? Like if you ever, like when you first hear it, it's, it sounds like this really weird thing. But like people who get in a circle and sing this certain kind of haunting m- music, it's like you just feel you start to feel this like pure joy of that. And that was it for me. It would be like that was my skiing or that was my motorcycle. Yeah. Was like yeah. I just was so happy to get in front of people. And, and say, shake, shaking through opportune, shaking through opportune. And to, to play, I just cannot get through to you. Like how much playing a D, an A, and a G made my heart sing. Like playing a three-chord pop song to this day like just gives me a, like a surpassing amount of joy, an impossible amount of joy. I imagine it's like what it feels, to play, feels like to play sports. But like, no, I was unselfconscious and I was terrible. But like, and I, I would screw up, but like it was just so fun to play those songs. And no sense, no sense of like status or like coolness or like girls or whatever at all. Interestingly, I think uh, the advent of things like rock band has opened up like sort of the various you know miniature versions of that to many more people because I think you know everyone does the tennis racket right sure but then it sure, drops sure. off for some people not everyone very very few people ever get up and do open mics in college with a guitar singing a song in front of people uh, but. Everyone loved the tennis racket. So what happened? Where did that go? Well, it's still there. And if you give them kind of a safe environment to do that in, like play a fake instrument that is much easier than the real instrument in a video game environment, you get to tap into those feelings that you were just describing of, no, you're not in front of people. No, you're not really playing the chords. But it's a close enough facsimile that you're kind of back to the tennis racket. And obviously doing it for realsy reels is way bigger and way more significant. But 
I think that is in every like mm-hmm. I'm using rock, rock band as an example of like that that everybody has everybody has that feeling and would like to tap into that but most of them don't because there are too many downsides and it's too difficult and it's not significant enough so this so this was your skiing this was your recreational thing that you did because you love doing it right um but okay, can i ask a question though like like where yep. would you situate karaoke alongside something like uh rock band very similar like it was you I'm glad you said that because I, I think they're i think they're extremely similar where like you get a lot of that feeling without having to have the like you get to basically use your your sense memories of that to participate in it, and in the same way as like you talk about how I can't really in, enjoy, I shouldn't watch these r- playthroughs of a game because it's not the same thing as playing the game. But like singing the song in karaoke is kind of like you're really singing the song. Yeah, and you're what you're trying to do is put a framing device on it that makes that takes away all the negatives that makes it a safe place. So karaoke is like oh haha, it's at bars, it's funny, we're not taking it seriously. That gives you license to enjoy legitimately the idea of going up and singing in front of people, even if you can't sing to save your life. That's the you know, and the safe place for video games is you're in the privacy of your own home. It's not really playing; it's right. a video game, but you can still get little tiny bits of those feelings out of it. Because doing the real thing, like the barrier to entry, there is huge. So many things are going to stop you from ever doing that right it really has to be something that that really turns you on that really lights up all your dials that you've put in the work to be able to do and that you know it needs to become your recreational activity and needs to be just so much positive that it it that's that's what gets people to go out there why does anybody ever just like get out there and you know go to open mic nights and just be like i just want to play music you don't have to pay me uh i just want to get out in front of people and i want to play music and it's important that it be in front of people and uh it's important to me that I somehow get better at it over some period of time, but it's, you know, you're not going into it this, at this point. It's not a thing that you think you're going to do as a career. You're doing it, like you said, as a recreational thing. How does that turn into, and also we're going to start a band? Same thing, like it would be even more fun if I did it with a bunch of my friends and we had a band because a band is much better than you just being up there with a the guitar. Is that kind of the motivation there? Um, I'm trying to remember without making it up or guessing. I'm trying to really remember. I mean, there are certain elements about the band thing that I can absolutely remember as clear as anything. See, I, I'm trying to. I, I I don't want to sound like I was like some some um, you know pure artist that was like, oh, I don't care if girls like it because I'm sure I did. But and I like the idea of like having more people than rather than fewer people seeing it. But a funny bridge here is that. Um. Starting my first band, which my, my first real college band, which was in the fall, like the, the first semester of 1987. Yeah, because we'd finally gotten some equipment. We got together. We decided we we're going to do this. And like, I mean, I, I, I get the exact songs wrong, but there was a handful of songs, no more than five or six songs where let me get this right. And then was it 88 or 89? Anyway, the point is that like there were certain songs Remember me talking about Pete, Pete Townsend and doing the, the, the jumping jack and doing the brown down? Like, I knew that there were a handful of songs that I wanted to play with other people in a band. Um, so, like, September Girls by Big Star, I guess it would have to be 1988 because uh, Cartoon by Soul Asylum, That's When I Reached for My Revolver by Boston Zone, Mission of Burma. Um, what were some of the other ones? There were just these certain songs where I was like, I want so much to find somebody who will play this song with me um, and in front of people. I, like, I want to play this. I want to get good at it. And I want, I want to play this really loud and I want to feel it 
in my goddamn sternum when I play this song. And that's really where it came from was like get decent enough equipment that we can like caterwaul along with this. Um, but that was, that was the instantiating factor was like, okay, we got the resources. Like we had enough money to get some equipment. We actually got some practice space courtesy of this school. Thank you. New college. And that's, you know, we had this, you know, this band. And what was this band called? <laughs> the Foves. Uh, I think I'll have to spell that. Well, there's already a band, I think, in Australia with this name, but we didn't know that. F-A-U-V-E-S. Uh, so this, is, this must have been my third year, actually. Not my Can second you use year. that word in a sentence? Um, fauve is French for wild beast. So you would say... Um, could I use fauve in a sentence? Um, I'm uh, just doing the, the spelling bee question. No, no, I understand. Thank you. Uh, fo- <laughs> sorry, fauves. F-A-U-V-E-S. Fauves. The guys who ruined that bathroom were total fauves. <laughs> Foves. Did you did you come up with this name? This sounds like a name that would come up with as from students in New College. Yes, because I was taking 20th century painting at the time. Uh-huh. All right. You All can right. go yeah. look for Fove in painting. Anyway, we we weren't particularly great, but it was God. It was so fun. It was so great. I met so many of my great friends. I met uh, the woman that I would marry in college, doing playing in bands with people. There's this little funky little like you know th- rotating cast of three to six bands that would just play stuff together. Oh, I was also in a, I was also in a band called the Righteous Surf with a uh, an umlaut over the U. Sorry, Mike. Did, did you come up with that name? Nope, nope, nope. That was Troy, who liked to be called Evil. The singer liked to be called Evil. And mm-hmm. we would drink a lot of beer and uh, and play David Bowie covers. Did you play gigs? Was this just like, was there a place for you to play? We, you had a we, practice we, paid, we played but... at a protest uh, the day that I was arrested. If you've ever seen that mug shot. So uh-huh. we were protesting about the trees being removed for a road mm-hmm. to an airport. And so the Righteous Surf played that morning. And then we all uh, we all got arrested. Yay, college. Was the umlaut over the U in surf? I'm trying to remember. I think it was in Fuchs. But it might have been in surf, too. Because, you know, once you start with the umlauts, you know, why stop? Yeah. But the Foves, like, we tried really hard. We wrote, we, we wrote quote-unquote original songs. Like, my songs were, like, very, let's just say inspired by R.E.M., and then we covered we covered lots of bands we loved. But I, I wrote jangly three chord songs, like like everything I I like writing. Um, but you know it was really super fun. I loved those guys a lot. And and it, like through meeting those guys, like the the bass player Joe like introduced me to Frank Zappa, and like you know Marty introduced me to like Dinosaur Junior. So like all these bands that became my favorite bands, and we would sometimes cover in this band. I learned about from these guys. I learned about Mission of Burma from Joe. So like that you know. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Hover. Hover is quite simply the best way to buy and manage domain names. It's the best place out there for buying a domain name, and it's easily my favorite place for doing stuff with that domain once it's yours. Learn more right now by going to Hover.com. Hover provides a simple, fast, and hassle-free method of buying domain names. You don't want to be faced with a thousand screens and a ton of add-ons and high prices. Registering a domain name at some of those places feels like nothing short of running a costly and confusing gauntlet. You're not going to get that with Hover. You just go to Hover.com and enter the phrase you want or some keywords, and Hover will find the best matches for you and show you a list of all the top-level domains available. Of course, Hover has all the TLDs you'd expect, like .com, .co, and .me, but they also have all of those crazy new TLDs like .football, .discount, and .irish. Hover has recently lowered the prices on pretty much all the 200-plus options that they have. For example, .com domains right now start at $12.99. And remember, that low price you pay for a domain name at Hover still includes free 
who is privacy for any account that allows it. Hover believes you shouldn't have to pay to keep your private information private, unlike some other registrars. Hover also has fantastic customer support. They have a no-hold, no-wait, no-transfer telephone support policy. So when you call Hover, you'll be talking to an actual human being. Hover support is a bona fide robot-free zone. They do have, of course, great support online. If you prefer that kind of thing, humans are not required. Hover has so much great other stuff like volume discounts and bulk domain renewals, custom email addresses, storage and forwarding. It's all in there. So much awesome stuff. So if you're in the market for some sweet new domains or you're ready to move your current domains to a place that treats you like a human professional, please give Hover a try. You can get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for our program by going to Hover.com and using the special code CORRECTIONS at checkout. Our thanks to Hover for making pretty much everything about domain names a breeze and for supporting reconcilable differences. All right, so keep going through the band history then. Where does this eventually... This, oh, this God, this goes on and... No, it? God, this goes on and on and on. This is... Wait, how much time do we have? Dude, we're an hour and 50 in. Okay, so whistle stop. Uh, they threw me out of the band. No, they didn't throw me out of the band. They dismantled the band and reformed with the three other guys minus me and gave it a different name playing a different kind of music. They eventually moved to San Francisco to start a band with my friend Michael Ferguson. Hi, Michael, as the singer. That happened. Um, so what other bands did I play in in college? Not many others. I got pretty busy fourth year. Uh, I continued to play live. Uh, kept playing at coffee houses and open mics after I graduated in Sarasota. My friend Grant Balfour and I had a weekly gig playing covers and originals at a French bistro. I got a job in Tallahassee. I started playing live acoustic stuff, whether that was a frat party or like, you know, again, at coffee houses and open mics. Started ingratiating myself with the groups, group there, groups there. Uh, what? I formed a band with a death metal, a couple, the, the rhythm section of a death metal band called Darth Vader's Church, otherwise known as DVC. Um, li- literally, like, like an epic death metal band that toured Germany. The bass player and the drummer owned our local, local bar, and we started a uh, band called Three Piece Spicy White Meat, where we played my songs. <laughs> we played, because there was a Popeyes across the street. So we would play my songs with Todd and Alan from DVC, Darth Vader's Church which I will find for you. Um, and then eventually I got into Bick and Ray, which is my, my, my primary canonical band. And then I played in Parachute Pants. Uh, I played in tons of bands in Tallahassee. You got into Bacon Ray. You didn't found that band? You became a member like, of other people there? <laughs> like co-found. Well, I was briefly an Ultra Boy right before Bacon <laughs> Ray. So, like, my favorite band in town was Ultra Boy. And, uh, and then Chris had to quit Ultra Boy. And so then I, I, sat, I, I stepped in, like, with much, like joyful honor i got to be in ultra boy for like a show or two and then eventually um mike coleman and i started bacon ray with uh chris gleesman mike played drums eventually bruce hamilton played drums and we drank a lot and had a lot of fun and it was like one of my favorite things ever being in bacon ray and so if you ever hear back to work and hear that dun 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 that's it's bacon ray god this is going on for so long also i'm really self-conscious now at this point you're out of college, right? I am well and truly way out of college at this point. So Bacon Ray was from 1994 until I left Tallahassee in 1999. We had a bunch of seven inches, two cassettes, and two CDs. See, did you have any contact? You must have at this point. Had contact with people who seem to be doing the same thing as you, which is like you're forming 17 different bands with 20 different people and, and playing a bunch of shows or whatever, who seem to 
break out of the, hey, this is a fun thing to do, and let's go around and drink a lot of beer, and into the world of quote-unquote real music where people know about them and oh, they yeah. make money and this is a living? Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we had, we had a label that I was kind of a second-tier helper at our label. And so basically, it was just a way of putting out our everybody's own band. So it was kind of founded by the people from Ultra Boy to put out Ultra Boy-related projects, and then it brought in other people, and pretty soon, everybody cool that we liked was putting out... You know, I'm putting out, meaning they pay for everything about it, and then there's this, just this ages to put it under. We also had in Tallahassee WM, uh, um, WVFS, which is like a really, really good uh, college rock station. Had like Music Director of the Year a couple years in a row in the 90s. Fantastic radio station that was incredibly generous to local artists, and they would let us come in and play. Monday nights, they had a local music show. There were bars to play in. Um, and so, yeah, but to, to that point, yeah, like my friend Stephen, if you see uh, F6X, when I talk to him on Twitter, um, Stephen was in far and away one of the most popular bands in our group, which is Flanders. And then he actually he tried out for Foo Fighters. Like, he was one of the most gifted people in all of those bands. Um, so, you know, he had some some close experiences there. This is around the time Creed was coming up in the Tallahassee scene. They were playing at different places than us. But uh, there were bands that kind of were like kind of um, – flashes in the pan that came and went because it's very kind of mercurial you know come and go town but no i knew lots of people like that and by virtue of the fact that we were in this sweet spot between like it was the early 90s where there were still lots of bands indie bands that would tour and come through town that hadn't dried up yet but like also being kind of like a big fish in a small pond like we got to open for like tons of amazing bands like we opened for ween we opened for mecons um we played with um uh, just a, a lot of pretty incredible bands did any of those words make any sense at all? I, I recognize a lot of those things. A lot of those words made sense to me. Um, but Poster children. We open for, open for poster children. I forgot about that one. What I'm getting at with this line of questioning is, because you were talking about it as like a recreational thing you did because it was just super fun. And now you're out of college and you could still be doing this kind of a fun thing, but you're in the scene enough where you must be having contact with people who are like, you know what? This is going to be my career. I'm a musician. I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to make my living as a musician. That living might actually be a reasonable thing to do. It is not just a hobby that I'm doing for the hell of it. This is what I am. When people ask me, what do you do for a living? I'm going to say I'm a musician. Right. Uh, did you ever feel like... When you saw that happening, did you were you jealous that they got to say that, or did you never conceptualize yourself as someone's going to ask me what I do for a living when I'm 35? I'm going to tell them I'm a musician. I'm in a band. No, I was never. I was never never envious of my friends who were making one leap up. Like, um, there's a really great band in town called Coldwater Army, and a bunch of those people like worked at the local paper. I worked at the Florida Flambeau, led by Dave Morris. This incredibly, uh, this amazing giant band that was just bristling with creativity. And a bunch of those people went on to do things like one guy was working with George Clinton, you know, uh, doing a lot of cocaine and producing stuff for George Clinton from P Funk. Like, um, you know, some of those people were working in public radio locally. Um, a friend of mine was, I don't know if it ever worked out. He was like going to be touring in support of Alejandro Escobedo. There were all kinds of people who were making these leaps. Uh, my friend wrote a song about Terry Gross and got to talk to her on the phone in the nineties. There were a lot of people who were making these little leaps. Um, there was a, like sometimes my friend's bands would be in movies and stuff like that. I didn't want that. I mean, what I would love is like if, um, if what, if if Merger Matador came to us and said, "Hey, Bacon Ray, make a record," which would never happen, that would have been great. Like I would I would have loved the whole like ticket to the top thing. But I was perfectly happy with the rest of my life and the job, mostly with the jobs and the work that I was doing. I never saw music as something that was going to be a giant money thing. 
it was not it, just the money but like a conceptualization of self like did you think of yourself as a musician like in the way like yeah, okay yeah yeah kind of and it was what's what's neat and what i want to make sure to tease out is that like you know there was not really a lot of money to be made from this uh, it was really more of a cost center if you were really involved it ended up being much more if you calculated it more of a cost center than a profit center but there was this like i got to hold a seven inch record in my hands of like something I was genuinely proud of. These three songs that we made in this summer of 1995, like the way that our friend Tommy was able to produce this, like just the way it all came together made me desperately happy. I don't care if another person in the world loves that, those three songs as much as I do. It made me so happy. You know, even a cassette, holding a cassette, like being able to sell my cassettes at a local radio, uh, at a local record store was amazing. Getting played on the radio, being listening to the radio at, at work and hearing a song that I wrote and, and I'm singing played on the radio I, 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 you know, if you hear it on Spotify, God bless you. But hearing yourself come over a radio that anybody could have brought me straight back to being like six or seven years old. It was magic being able to even on like local access TV, getting interviewed for things like appearing in like alternative press magazine and stuff like that. That was giant. I mean, that was all I needed. That, that was more than enough adulation for me. That and knowing that the people I admired would come and get drunk at our show just made me super happy. It was I, I, I we all knew the the music world was all broken. We we were forming a band like right around the time just after Kurt Cobain killed himself. Like we were all pretty aware of like how screwed up that business was. But the, again, the community, like the, the people that we played with, the people. Yeah. Anyway, whatever going on. But so, so you didn't you didn't have the the drive of like. I'm going to make this work as a career no, for myself. Absolutely, like skiing, abso- skiing is a cost center too. Like you cost money to go skiing. You don't make money skiing, but it's so much fun. You're just going to do it. Like you're going to buy the skis. You're going to get the lift ticket. You're going to make the reservations. You're going to go to the place. And you're going to do it because it's awesome. Um, but you never think, oh, I'm going to be a professional skier. I'm going to be in the Olympics. Nope. So you you were never like, uh, there was never any drive to do this for a living. Like this is the thing I want to do with my life. And the, when I have to go to work, uh, doing desktop publishing on the Mac SE. That is all I can think about is I need to get out of this hellhole because what I need to do is be a musician. I just have to make it work somehow. I need to be in a different band. I need to go on the road. I need to, like, that was not anywhere in you. It was more like this is a like a group that gets together every weekend and races remote control cars. Right. It's just super awesome. And you like to be in the community. You like to do that. You like to meet the famous racers. Some of your people, your friends became slightly uh, better or more famous, but you're never... You were never like, I'm going to be a musician. And so there was never any sort of like that drive that I see some people have where they you see what they go through. Like, if you want to do that for a living, what does it actually take? Because most people are not going to succeed, but you don't know if you're going to succeed until you spent like four or five years on the road, like playing in in hole in the wall places, trying to make a go of it before you can decide, you know, before you're too old to do that anymore or you just decide that this isn't fun anymore and I'm obviously not going to make it. So I should go back and get a real job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think of the, the, there was a few different lineups of bacon Ray in particular, but like there was me who, um, at first had a job with Dave, the marketing guy, and then was doing web pages. My friend, Mike was the manager had for many years, been the manager of the best record store in town. The drummer worked at a place making t-shirts. Um, I think Jason had a variety of different jobs, but like, you know, we all, we all had jobs. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't tour. <laughs> we couldn't do any of that. Like that was not going to happen. And, Cause you had to go to work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We had lives, you know, we, that wasn't going to happen. So, I mean, but I, you know, you also can't discount the fact that like 
for for two nights a week we would get get together and drink beer and play rock songs and go deaf a little bit and that was really really fun i mean that was my poker that was my sports was like being with these you know three four five people in a room and like figuring out a song and figuring out how to make it a little better and yeah that was that that process it, it was hard but fun i mean like the whole process back then of like the rehearsing and the recording I don't think it's as quite as easy as it is today. Like we we had to buy ADATs and stuff like that. But like, yeah, it, it was really uh, it was incredibly gratifying, even if it was a cost center rather than a profit center. I feel like if I got that close, like if I was at that, that stage, I would just feel like, what is the difference between me and these bands that I, I don't I, no, I don't get that from you at all I can I get closer because like you were so close you, you were just you were just right there like really really what is the difference is, is it just chance is it just opportunity is it just the right mix of things at the right time and oh like like hang around long enough for your lucky shot kind of thing or just like you know you you got all the ingredients you got people you got to drive to you enjoy doing it you got to drive to do it better I guess it's, if you enjoy other things as well it's like well this is an awesome fun thing to do but you also like screwing around at your job with the the Mac stuff or whatever like that right. there there's more than that wasn't the only thing in your life that you were into it was oh just no a, no 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 a really super awesome fun thing that you like but there were a lot of things that you liked and it was never it, I guess I mean the odds are lower like if if you like me you're super into computers it's so clear that that's going to be a viable uh, you know career like and so you're never going to be like well I just like I, I write programs as a hobby but I you know I wouldn't. I, I'm not going to be like you can be a professional once you do it once you're doing it once you're writing the code and doing making actual programs that's a marketable skill it's not like music where it's going to be like a one in a bazillion shot there's plenty of room for programmers there's going to be more of them every day go in that can be your job you're like hey I got a job doing something I enjoy whereas with music you always kind of know in the back of your mind I suppose that as much as you may enjoy doing it a vanishingly small percentage of people who enjoy playing music can actually make their living doing it so why get hung up on that there's plenty of other things that you're into that are more marketable and you can still have super awesome fun with your friends uh playing music together because that's really what you like out of it and there's no sort of no sort of like the the bitterness that they show you that i haven't experienced but they show you in like hollywood movies and stuff of the waiter who wants to be an actor and they're in hollywood they don't want to be a waiter they want to quit that job as a waiter the second they can because they're out there to become an actor well you know on the one hand just one super quick point like i I don't want to something i should clarify is that like our band was really weird and and, like we weren't good like we were not like polished and we and partly because i don't know if we ever could be polished but you know i think there was an element of the whole like well i turned it in on the last day kind of thing like wow we were really drunk and we just learned that yesterday and that was a perfectly fine excuse for us so i don't ever feel like we were really playing at the same level as like steven's band as like flanders for example where you know they they were actually pretty close to being kind of big like they'd been in some you know finals for contests and stuff like that like they were really good they played professionally they got some dough but like it's also i was tempted to say like hey like what about you and podcasts like ha 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 like you could probably almost do this for kind of a living if you put your mind to it but the question becomes like what do you want to make what are you comfortable making uh, a perhaps irrational leap about and so like for me the irrational leap ended up being about the web stuff like that was a completely irrational leap i think i could go from desktop publishing and telnet to making crappy web pages for money. I mean, you know, haha. But like in retrospect, that was, it's kind of crazy that I pulled that off as, as well as, or as luckily as I did. 
Well, I mean, but that's a different. Don't you feel like that? There's more of a chance. That's a career that you can have. Like you don't have to be the best web de- web developer in the world to get a job as a web developer. Whereas with musicians, you have to be not only one of the best in the world, but also super no, lucky. No, 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 no. Because there are a lot of slots. No, you're 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 being myopic. You you went to college for this stuff. I did not go to college for that stuff. The idea of doing stuff with computers when computers had always been at best secondary and mostly tertiary like why would i why would i pivot to like barely understanding computers and barely understanding design as a way to like and again let's let's not let's not act like i'm nostradamus to to basically be able to cover up the income i lost by getting fired from this job that i wanted to mostly get fired from you know what i mean so like 1995 it was like more like well like time to scramble and it was easy enough to like scramble to that the timing was really good i was really lucky but, you know, that was far from like an obvious or was far from an obvious thing that that would be a thing I would do. But you, and when you were scrambling, you didn't say, well, now it's time to make this band start being my job. Like that wasn't that didn't enter your mind. Oh, God, no, 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 no. Oh, geez, that would have been really bad. No, but I thought about stuff like and I did. St- I started writing. Um, I'd been writing a little bit for like local papers, like for like the rock and roll paper and stuff like that. But you know, no, but it was clear I had to do something that was actually. Well, like, don't you think uh, writing? I think it's the same thing. It's harder to make a living as a writer than it is to make a living as someone who knows a little bit about computers, especially oh, back in yeah. the internet days. Like you said it yourself. Like if you knew what the BR tag was, you were basically a god, and they needed more of those people every day. Everyone needed them. Like I guess it was right. leap of faith to assume that everyone was going to need one because, like, maybe you were you saw before everyone else that everyone is going to have a website. And a lot of people didn't see that. And so, like, how many – there's probably, like, you know, there's probably a market for maybe five computers in the world total. There's probably a market – you know, how many people need a website? Probably, like, maybe five or six of the biggest companies. So don't bother sure. being a web developer because, if you know – and you saw uh, – must have at least sense that, like, you know what? Everyone's going to have a website. Well, and, and who's going to pay $40 a month to host it? You know, <laughs> right? Who's going to who's going to put that kind of money in? It's not worth it. But like you know, something I, I skipped over because it wasn't relevant is that you know when I graduated from college, um, 1990, like there was no question I was going to be a writer. Like that was what I was going to do, and so like I got lots of really really nicely printed, beautifully typeset things from the New Yorker and the Atlantic about how thank you, but no thank you, and so but really that starting out that first year, 1990 into 91, that was the plan. The plan was I was going to write for money, and so I started doing anything for anything. I was writing for regional papers. I was writing for like the local like th- like throwaway, you know, fashion magazine like anything i could get anywhere i just wanted that clipping and the money was next to nothing and then really i made it up um kind of i mean my rent was 250 dollars a month but like the way that i made it up was in doing uh, desktop publishing like my if i did not have the regular gig doing the newsletter for pines of sarasota retirement home i, I don't know what i would have done next and then that became the pivot that became the thing where like okay i've yeah. got these i know how to pick fonts and like that's a thing now yeah, it's hard. Like I said, it's hard to make a living writing, freelance writing, trying to get a gig. You think you talked about trying to get a gig at the newspaper? Or did you have one like the, at the local paper? That oh, interview process, remember that? I, but, but you know, one of the breakthrough, uh, weird breakthrough gigs was uh, a guy that I got connected to. I don't remember how. I had gotten a grant from the NEA to do a – he was a community college teacher, and he was going to do this series on ethics and film. And so – 
basically, I, I don't know how I landed this. I was so lucky. But I made like probably $1,500 maybe from this, where I was going to lay out this fake newspaper that was going to be about like, f- including I helped write the fake articles of all these stories about like the, the movies in this series. And I had to come up with the word search for it and lay it out and do all that. And I wrote one of the articles. So it was my first gig where I was like, wow. You know, I got to make it and eat it. So I got to help write this. I got to help, quote unquote, typeset this. Please never find a copy of this anywhere. But I, and I got to write about, in this case, Network. Oh, and guess what? Network, that's a movie that heavily, heavily related to the ideas in my undergrad thesis. So for me, you know, whatever, I, I doubt I made more than $1,500 from that. But like, that was giant for me because it was desktop publishing and writing and college. And like, I was in the paper, you know? For like half a year's rent too. <laughs> oh my god, I you, I can't believe what I lived on back then. Two hundred and fifty dollars. I was in a garage. I was in a detached I mean, garage. This is not like in nineteen fifty-two, right? Like two hundred fifty dollars for rent for what year is this? Nineteen ninety to ninety-one. Ninety. All right. I had my, well, had my own freestanding garage at this guy's house, and with a with a Sears air conditioner in it and a futon on the floor, a lot of ibuprofen. Now you, uh, what what happened with you? Can I ask about you and guitar? When did you start playing guitar? Uh, I before wait. I, I will I will explain a little bit of myself, but I want to try to put a bow on the whole music thing because I think this has been extremely informative. I've listened to you for years on many many podcasts. Talk about music, talk around music, talk around these things, and maybe other people don't have the same questions as I did. But I definitely this, these are things that I wanted to know about this experiences. The key questions are, did you want to be a musician? Did music come naturally to you? Why Why did you find yourself doing it? Why are you not doing it for a living? Because I think those are the, the most... That's what I always ask myself when I see people who have an obvious talent for something uh, and yet do something else to make their way in the world but continue to do that other thing. You know what I mean? Like, do you, yeah, do you I ever do. get that feeling? I don't know if I have a talent for it. I think I have an affinity for it. Like, where it's it's like I, I don't I don't know if any particularly any good at it, but I'm very enthusiastic about it. And that's you can't stop somebody with enthusiasm. You know, even as I realize, like, God, no, can I I mean, I have friends who are musicians. I do not want to do that. Yeah, but you would be less. Uh, you'd have less of an affinity for it if you didn't have the talent. Like, you, you put in the time, you put in the. It's like the guitar thing. You you were motivated to play guitar because you wanted to to be Pete Townsend for two seconds. Like right, and that, right. that, and you were not motivated to learn trombone because there's no thing that you wanted to do with that instrument. I've never right? wanted to begin the begin. Never occurred to me. Yeah, well, you know, you want you never wanted to be in the mood. <laughs> Who doesn't like that? Come on. Yeah, that's undeniable. Anyway, uh, I think we'll end up circling back to Merlin's world of music when we get into Merlin's world of drugs in some future point. But future future, he- future seasons, yeah, too heavy for right now. But anyway, guitar for me. My musical, I think I've talked about this on past shows, but like, I I liked music. I like music much less than most people, right up until the point where I started to like it slightly more, which is, you know, when I get into the whole big U2 phase and everything, and music starts to be much more important to me, albeit in a very focused way. Um, and before that, leading up to that, same thing. Like, my parents never forced me to do an instrument. Uh, when in elementary school, the various phases, you had to pick an instrument or see if you wanted to be in chorus or whatever. I did not want to pick an instrument because I didn't want to be in it because it just, it, I totally read as like homework to me. Like, you know, practice. I, I knew from all my friends practicing instruments is, was annoying. It's like, an, it's like a chore. It's like homework is the thing you don't want to do. Um, singing. 
I remember distinctly in uh, elementary school that they would have chorus tryouts. And I didn't want to have anything to do with that for, you know, I didn't try out for chorus because I didn't, I, I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't sing and I didn't want to sing and didn't want to be in front of people. It's just like a version of public speaking, but worse. One year, like after, maybe it was like maybe fifth or sixth grade towards the tail end of elementary school, I did try out for chorus just because it seemed like I wanted to prove that I could do it and get accepted. And they did say, they did give me the nod and whatever it is and say, you can be in the chorus, which again is a low bar because they'll just take anyone. Yeah, but that takes guts. I mean, doing a tryout for chorus is like that. I would never do it today. I don't understand how I do it, but I remember that harrowing to think about (laughs) Yes, I remember being in the music room and we're getting up there and singing whatever they had to sing. I probably did not do this before my voice changed, which I, I think helped a lot. <laughs> I'm just a gal who can't say no. I'm in a terrible fix. I don't have no idea what I was singing. <laughs> Oklahoma, of course. I was on the list. You could be in chorus. And then I said, okay, no, thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to show that I could do it. I did not join chorus. You're, you're a refusenik. <laughs> I was never going to be in chorus. I just wanted to see if I could do it. Right. Um, and then, like, at home, we had, I remember we had an electric organ. Do you remember those before the days of synthesizers? Oh, I forgot to talk about the organ. I, so much of figuring out music was playing a Sears organ we had, yeah. Uh, this was like a, a kid's one, so the keys were... Did, did, it have, did it have the chords with the buttons? Like an accordion? No, it was, it was just like a miniature piano keyboard, not a full keyboard. The keys were not full-sized. Mm-hmm. They were super stiff and creaky. The sound of this thing made was hideous. It was, like, very tall and upright and beige with these little miniature keys, and that was all there was to it. There was no dials, no buttons. You plugged it into the wall, you turned it on, you pressed these keys, it made a horrible noise. Uh, and it had a little place for you to put your sheet music. And we, I think that was the first musical instrument we had in the house that I remember doing anything with, and the first thing I remember doing with that is learning the chords to jump. Which is fairly straightforward to play if you're if you're a kid on the thing. I and mean, you could what is that, nineteen eighty four, right? I think it is actually nineteen eighty four if memory serves. Right. And that's a synthesizer and this is an electric organ from, you know, some department store and it sounded terrible. That's the first musical thing I can think of doing. And that was the first thing that made me say, I've heard that song on the radio, because this was before I was doing anything with radio. I like that song. I can make noises that are vaguely like that song and that's fun to Doesn't do. Doesn't that so feel good? This is like my version of rock band. Right? Yeah. And so then uh, that led into a series of like my, my sister got a Casio keyboard with even smaller keys, but it had all the little buttons and instruments and the little bossa nova beat that you could play, all sorts of other crap that you could do and play different things. And I played with that little keyboard and started learning more things that I could do with it because in many ways, the piano was a lot like video games and it's like finger hand finger dexterity. And so I could figure these, I, I could you know figure out music it was like doing multiplication tables i would have to like look at the like, i can never read music i still can't read music but i could eventually figure out what keyboard key that little blip meant right i didn't know what all the, the time signatures meant i had no rhythm it didn't matter anyway because if i knew the song again like you know toto's africa or something and someone had a keyboard translation of it i knew what it was supposed to sound like i would figure out what keys they were having me hit and then i would just repeat those actions until i memorized it and could do it eventually, but, but it was still like like intellectually and physically independent of the blips on the page yeah, I could never sight read music. I could never do it. Yeah, I right. still can't do it. Still, still, it just never made the connection. It still music feels like theory. it still feels like magic to me that anyone can do that. It's just it's just pure pure practice is like having done that a million times and knowing how songs mostly go and you just sit down and it, I don't know how anyone does that. It blows me away. I, I think if you, I never had any education in music theory and I think that would have helped a lot because it would have made it slightly more explicable. Not that I would have got it, but I think for the people who do know music theory either intuitively because some people just get it intuitively, like you don't have to explain music theory to them. They're like it's, it's like explaining colors to them. It's like that's red and that's blue. Who needs to explain this to me? I understand it. You mix them, you get purple. What the hell? You're right. Some people just get it. I didn't. Well, I both didn't get it and never had. 
it explained to me. So I was really like groping around in the dark. Eventually, somehow, I think I volunteered myself to take piano lessons because I felt like I could play enough things that sounded like pop songs that I was into that I should try to learn how to, and then piano lessons was like you know we were back to Little Brown Jug and doing things that like you know songs that I hadn't heard before that I wasn't interested in and they were kind of picky about half notes and whole notes and quarter notes and I had, <laughs> and I had no rhythm and it's like time has no meaning to me when I press these keys it just I just need to make the sounds that make the feelings go in my head and so that was very uh, brief um and i was uh, that was basically my determination that i was and at that point like i was in high school and people could actually play the piano and everyone had been playing their instruments for years and i was like well that ends that little diversionary hobby for a long time i could still play a lot of pop songs some pretty impressive things and some things that are actually rhythmically uh uh difficult like uh linus and lucy the peanuts theme Mm mm-hmm uh, which has two hands doing different things at different rhythms. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I trained myself to do that badly, very well, badly. Well, ne- neither hand is difficult, but doing them at the same time is yeah, difficult. Yeah, but doing them at the same yeah. time, and it, it's like patting your head and rubbing your stomach. At first, I couldn't do that either, but I was determined to be able to figure out how to make my body do it, and eventually I did. <laughs> it was essentially the same thing with that song. Um, but it was all just memorizing key things, and so that kind of went by the wayside when I went off to college. It was never, you know... It was a thing. It was basically I was trying to. If rock band had existed, it would have made me a lot happier because that's all I really wanted. All I really wanted was that kind of feeling of, hey, I'm making music when really, you know, you're not. Um, I was never going to write my own songs. I was never going to sing. I was never going to be good at, at any kind of musical things. Um, it was just a fun hobby. But I did have fun noodling around on that. I would like when a pop song came out that I liked and I thought it would lend itself well to if there was some slow piano we ballad or like don henley end of the innocence like oh that's got a piano part i should get home the music for that. sweet home <laughs> yeah like if it if it has a piano part i'm like because so many times oh, home sweet would, home do you remember that the was it motley crew uh, yeah, i'm on my way yeah, I yeah know everybody learned that one on piano yeah or, or like i said end of the innocence same thing lots of billy joel sister christian right, right up yeah sister christian right up my alley you know billy joel although the problem is billy joel's ones they were usually too hard for me like always a woman playing it the right way oh yeah. like where there's actual melodies oh yeah forget it yeah like that's it's really difficult cold, anyway. cold as ice by foreigner I think I ever tried that dun, one. Oh, you dun, could do Final dun. Countdown if you had your synth, right? Axel <laughs> <laughs> right. F, you know, Beverly Hills Cop. You're looking for things that lend themselves to your Casio keyboard. So that's, I'm just noodling around there. Right, right. When right. I went to college, everybody at college, it seemed to me, on my floor had a guitar and could play guitar. My roommate, my freshman year roommate, was super into Randy Rhodes, who I'd never heard of. But believe me, by the end of that year, I knew all about Randy Rhodes and all about all the bands that he was into and all about. Uh, guitar players That's, that sounds in insufferable no he was great it, like and and he was like was he, playing, had, was he playing loud he was, was was he skillful and not too loud he was pretty good he had uh i think he had just brought his acoustic until like mid-year and then he brought in his electric but he was he was a super nice God, guy i haven't played I, mr I never, crowley man mr crowley everybody thinks it's tra- crazy train but mr crowley's the one where you really see the proof in the pudding yeah, no, I I got it all. That I, that's the first time I basically I had I had heard any of those songs. Like most of the older brothers when I was growing up were maybe into like, well, not not. Uh, let me think of what what seventies band. Well, they would have been into Boston. They would have maybe been... Def Leppard. Uh, what think of like uh seventies denim bell bottom bands post sixties after the Who, but, but before. Like, I mean, I know you were living in New York then, right? Mm-hmm. But like Boston, they would have been into Boston. They would have been yeah. into um, Jefferson Starship. Yep, they would yep. have been into um, maybe Montrose. I'm, not, I'm trying to be not too obscure, but like, uh, and eventually Van Halen, obviously. 
Um, no, Van Halen was our was our band. This is the older brothers were into that. But the point is, I didn't have any old, older oh, brothers Fle- who, were doing, who, who were doing uh, who were doing Judas Priest, ACDC, uh, you know, right, sure, Ozzy. Oh, so like so thing. like like Deep Purple, maybe Rainbow. Yeah, and I didn't get a lot of that growing up. So when I went to college, my roommate was into that and was into the guitar and had a guitar and would play it and would try to learn the licks from all the, you know all the various Randy Rhodes licks and stuff like that. And just and I had never had that experience. Uh, in high school and so it just it just seemed like everyone on the floor had a guitar and i'm like you know what i should get i started just you know playing his he showed me some chords and you learn this the guitar is more seductive than the piano because you really need to learn very little to like like i said the three you just learn three chords yeah yeah you realize that suddenly you can do things that like and especially since so many songs are based on three chords you can't play the song as you hear it but you can play along with the song you feel like you're participating in the making of the song because like yes this section of the song does this chord i don't know what the music theory is this chord goes with this part of the song and then when you go to this part of the song i play a different chord and it goes with that part of the song and it's like magic because i'm doing nothing all i got to learn is these finger contortions i got to get some calluses on my fingers uh and um, off to the races my finger's gonna be numb for a little while which is gonna be weird but like eventually like god the guitar i bought i bought a guitar for myself i think like on break of the first year i bought a yamaha acoustic guitar that i still have it's up in my daughter's room wow the, the highest action of any guitar i've ever seen like the strings are like 17 miles off the front my, i have a yamaha from 1988 with the highest action in the world they Why? Be brothers. i don't understand what the, like it was so hard to play like it was my first yeah. thing to play it was killing my fingers you just gotta to keep it these- below the seventh fret and you'll be fine and I would play some of my friends' guitars, and I'd do a bar chord. I'm like, holy Whoa. cow, this is so easy on your guitar. Like, <laughs> it's you know, like playing a Les Paul or something. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I don't care if this fret buzz. Like, I just, just, yeah, right. It was, and, and then the first time I tried an electric guitar, I was like, these strings are incredible. Anyway, uh, the, the finger dexterity to just do the guitar parts was the part that was difficult. But once I could get, you know, go through all my open chords, then it was like, okay. Then it was like, uh, download, this is Usenet days, download ASCII Art Guitar Tab for YouTube parts, which yeah. is always so, so disappointing because it's like seven this notes. Is, and they this sound is like where nothing. we get to my question, which is like, situate U2 and guitar, interest in U2 and interesting guitar. Like, give me a sense of the chronology for those because I, it's hard, for, no, not hard for me to imagine. It would be kind of weird to have to start out like it's one thing to be like a pete townsend or who fan and start playing guitar where you'd like you could learn you know pictures of lily or something but like trying to learn and the edges edges things are not hard but they're very weird very atmospheric and like i'm i'm sure there are plenty of his songs that you could play with with chords and stuff but the stuff that essentially makes him interesting as a guitar player and draws you to you too is much more um nebulous like it would be hard to learn his parts on an acoustic guitar i'm guessing well, Edge is like the the thinking man's guitar player, which is a nice way of saying that he's probably not a very good guitar player, but he goes to his strengths. Um, and so it was like, he's not Eddie Van Halen. He's not Randy Rhodes. <laughs> he's not Joe Satriani, right? He, he's he got, often he's plays got, up to two strings at a time. He's got a limited set of skills. How does he How does he parlay them into... How does how the hell is he on the cover of, of a guitar magazine? Sometimes he was on the cover of a guitar magazine. It's like, how well, is he on the cover? He, but yeah, I mean, he's. He, but he's. But you know what? You know, I'm being silly. But obviously, it, it's a little bit of like, a, like, like what? I mean, like he had a lot of feel to what he did and what he was increasingly able to accomplish with the way he did his setup and how he played. But you know what? People don't get credit for and like. So like, Brian, nobody takes Brian Eno to, to task for how simple his ambient songs are. In the case of the Edge, like, let's give the guy some credit for arrangement for like not just for like having pedals, but how he uses 
them and how that ends up affecting the feel of the song. You know, just because somebody has a giant, giant Marshall and a Les Paul does not make them, you know, a, a great guitar player. It's just, it's just, it is interesting though, because it's one thing to go like, I'm going to learn this Dylan song. Or even I'm going to learn this like Bruce Springsteen song, but like in his case, like you, there are probably a bunch of his songs that kind of almost sound like the same song at first. Well, it's it's not so much of the same song. I appreciated his, I appreciated his economy of playing, regardless of what motivated, because because it was different. Like U two has a U two guitar sound, just like REM has an REM guitar sound. U two has a U two guitar sound. Mm-hmm. That sound is defined not just by the effects, because a lot of those came in later, but just by, you know. The, I mean, I guess kind of defined by the Echo Man, Echo Machine early on, and then the distortion stuff coming in when Eno started to, to uh, work with them. But that that sound appealed to me. But underneath there, the structure of the songs are pretty solid. And sometimes I, I did want to make that sound. So I would, you know, not the tennis racket, but you could do air guitar to U2 songs. You just end up playing the echo parts as if it's seven notes instead of one. Because you're not gonna you're not going to air guitar strum the one note that edge hit well because look, look, look at look at bad um you know which was absolutely one of my favorite songs of the era um especially live was like what's he doing he's like like doing an a and an a suspended and a d maybe d5 but it's like yeah it's repeated the whole way it's practically it's practically like the bass part is equally complicated well but it's like <laughs> he's doing like some kind of like a little suspended thing and a harmonic and then he's doing another like a little d thing and a harmonic but like it completely works it totally yeah, works it, for that it, song it, it, yeah it builds to something like it's all it's all you know feel and not technique and trying to and that and that was a simpler song like there are ones that are more structurally well yeah i'm talking sound. about the u2 that i liked but i mean even even for example like i just made a joke about i will follow but i think you know to me <laughs> I, I will follow is unimpeachably one like I, I like boy more than most people i think boy is like a gorgeous explosion of youthful energy that's not sure where mm-hmm. to go and i love it I, I i love its pretensions i i i love boy and like to me like you know like into the heart of a child like i love that stuff it's so and then when you get the dung, 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 you like dung, dung, dung. you like glockenspiels do you <laughs> I, I i'm a springsteen fan of course i like glockenspiels <laughs> yeah no i'm on board with the glockenspiels but like in the case of but like i will follow like that opening those opening and like you can play that on guitar like i would play that you can't play that on acoustic guitar i'll tell you that (laughs) well the way i the way i play like my my ham-fisted version of that would be like open high e and then playing something i don't have a guitar in front of me right now but like the 12th and 10th frets on the b Right, it's kind of like da na 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 na. But the point is, it's perfect. It works perfectly for the song. And like you know, nobody nobody yells at the Ramones for being simple. But in the case of of you know, like he gets out of the way of the song, and over the years, the way he builds texture, it's just funny though because like it's almost like being into like like Flock of Seagulls. Like that would be a weird band to be into that would lead you to guitar. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. I don't think it led me to guitar. Like in in some ways, it was like here. You know me. I wanted to play exactly what they're playing. So I heard "Pride in the Name of Love," and I was like, "How is he making that sound with a guitar? How oh, is that right. song played with a guitar?" I wanted to know not just like, "Can I play some chords that fit with the song?" What the hell is he actually playing? And you download. That's part of my search for tablature early on. Was I need to know what he's actually playing? And you'd see live footage, and you'd see he's like way down the fretboard. And so obviously, it's like you know. He's doing something way down in the area where most people are not playing the guitar unless unless it's like Eddie Van Halen traveling down there to do some like hammer-ons for in some solo or something. He's way down there and he's just he's just holding down his fingers on these chords and adjusting a little bit and hitting these three strings back and forth with an echo. It's like 
what how is he doing that right. what is he and i wanted to know and the harmonics the harmonics become so important even just on joshua tree to hear like well you can't do that but joshua tree like where the streets have no name has like seven guitars on it so you're not going to play that yourself right so at least i could kind of sign that one off but but pride you could see it live like he can make those sound. And same thing with octane baby when he was doing all the like the effects and the distortion and everything which one which one is uh which one's mysterious ways what album is that uh, that's octane baby okay uh, my brother, I think, was the first one. I brought this guitar fever kind of home, and I, and I think my brother started getting into it a little bit from his friends. He was the first one, I think, to buy an electric guitar, and he had an amp, and he added some effects pedals. And then it's like, all right, now finally all this noodling I had done with these songs, <laughs> like I can I can add some distortion and play those same three songs, oh, uh, same, same three chords, and it's like now it starts to sound like this. I remember being excited when Monster came out. Uh, the R.E.M. album, yeah. because I was like, all right, this is, you know, not that it was R.E.M.'s greatest album, and it's kind of like Dylan going electric, where R.E.M.'s going to play all these distorted guitars, fine, have your thing. Is that cr- like, Crush with Eyeliner? Is that that one? Yeah, uh, but like, uh, what was it? Um, uh, is that What's be, the Frequency? Be Mine, or, okay. or, or uh, Let Me In. Let Me In was a good one. Let Me In is like a couple of simple chords, super distorted. You could play the chords in an acoustic guitar, it sounded like nothing. You get a big fuzz pedal on there, you can play Let Me In, and you just got to have Michael Stipe croon over the top of you, and you, you can play it dead on. Oh, like, it like, like the, the leap from electric to electric with the right pedals is tantamount, in some ways, to the leap from acoustic to electric, where like you, suddenly, it's not just that it's easier, but it's like you can do so many more different things. And it's it's like a completely different instrument. Yeah, and you could sound like you're playing the song. Like, let me in. You can actually play the song. You just need a basic rudimentary guitar skills. You need to know the chords. You need the right pedal, and you can play dead on that. You can have uh, you can have bass and a drum behind. You can literally play that song. It sounds just as good as it does on the album. And that was what I was always going for. I always wanted to know what Billy Joel, what keys are you hitting in Always a Woman? It sounds like a lot of them. I don't want to play an approximation. I want to figure out. I want to play that song. And always I was not able to do that. And like for that's why like you're looking for like end of the innocence or something with with the piano part where you feel like you can play it Um, for guitar stuff. I remember being like uh, under the bridge, right? The beginning of that. Right. Like, oh, (laughs) I can identify individual notes to this day. I think like that was I love the image of (laughs) a young John Syracuse learning to play under the bridge because it's like it's a guitar. It's a nice it's isn't a nice opening guitar part. Yeah. And you can hear all the you can hear all the individual notes and you're like, you know what? I can play that like Randy Rhodes. You would hear and you're like, okay, that's never going to happen. Right. Right. That's like back to me in pictures of matchstick men. Like this is doable. I, I, I can almost master this. Right, and, and and the tab was the real tab. Like I could, I could. It wasn't really because they had transposed it. Because if you looked at the video, I forget who was playing it in the video. The guy with the wool hat. I don't know the the lineup of Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I don't know if it was like the actual guitarist who played on the album was a different one in the video. Maybe one of them died. You can tell me. I don't know the history of this band. Oh no, under the bridge. That that guy was alive. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but anyway, in the video, it looked like he was playing something. But anyway, you could more or less play something that was like that, and that that's what I was attracted to when I was learning guitar. But. The U2 stuff would come in when I felt like I had enough skill that I was like, you know what? I want to play the songs that I like because I don't like Red Hot Chili Peppers. I didn't own any of their albums. I had seen the Under the Bridge video on MTV and realized that's a guitar part. But then I was like, <laughs> is there anything in U2's catalog that I can play? And I, I wanted to make it run at Pride. Never got hit close to it. I wanted to try like one, which was a slower song and see if you could get anything out of it. Joshua Tree was difficult. In the end, I never found myself doing anything satisfactory with the guitar that approximated U2. But I felt like learning the guitar quote unquote learning the guitar because at this point i can't even play a single bar chord i'm sure uh 
brought me closer to the band i always appreciated edge he was always my favorite member of the band just attitude wise and the fact that he was like the techie and the the nerd the clear nerd of the of the band and i uh, appreciated that he was he was sort of like the anti-guitar hero yeah in the same way that like you might like john and twistle in the who he, he was kind of mysterious without being like distant necessarily he just seemed like the shy guy the george harrison of the band you know yeah like it, it, definitely the nerdiest one the guy oh, who yeah. was gonna tinker no with question. the electronics yeah. right um in the same way that, like, uh, uh, you know, Michael Stipe was the shy one in R.E.M. who didn't make yeah. eye contact and looked away from the camera like, if you're attracted to that type of person. So I was attracted to Edge in the band. Um, and Bono was, like, the, you know, the alter ego that I could never be, the, the extroverted kind of one, which is great for him. He's, to the, be. he's the Keith Moon. He's to be, to be the singer. Um, but, yeah, like, that that's what guitar was for me. It was a way to get closer to bands that I really liked. It was a way to, once again, try to do that sort of rock bandy kind of thing where you're approximating the feeling of participating in the songs that you enjoy. But I never got close enough to... I could never play any song all the way through. Had I recorded myself, I would have been able to hear clearly that I have no rhythm and I am just hunting around for chords and time has no meaning in this thing. It was just a thing for me to do, to noodle around with, and... <laughs> like it's like why are you buying a guitar for like i like bought my car for like 150 dollars, which was a reasonable amount of money back then when i had no job just to noodle around for it for four years money well spent noodling around your guitar for four years that is there is nothing wrong with that pastime totally even if you're yeah. never gonna play a damn thing in your whole life even if i never made up a song even if i can't sing even if i'm just downloading guitar time from usenet and plunking away at it uh that's a great fun thing to do uh and like that's why that's why you know i the guitar was up in the attic my daughter expressed an interest here you go it's in your room do, do what you want with it uh i'm assuming eventually what she wants with it will be that she will break it but whatever <laughs> like i think that's a perfectly good uh pastime uh to engage in but music was never uh as central in my life as it, as it was to you both in terms of interest in other things or or in playing it and, and like i just honestly like i have very little aptitude for it the only thing i have going for me is my hand-eye coordination that that lends itself to things like drawing in video games and uh, uh unscrewing appliances and other things like that and i could <laughs> i could i could transfer that into a nut like as i feel like if you give me any instrument i could eventually get good enough to play mary had a little lamb on it right um uh, but beyond that some people just have that gift like they'll just like oh that's a chapman stick and they just play it but like in the case of your daughter like you know not to be corny about it but like you know i don't care if that thing's torn to shreds like if that thing gets gets broken into a million pieces if she ever had one afternoon where she got excited about music from plinking around on that it's worth it like for me with my daughter like just she's playing it wrong she's doing it terribly but like I'm just I stay out of the way. Like she's if she wants to learn more, she'll learn more. But like it was so formative for me to like not have somebody hovering over me. Let, let's gosh, let me just have my breakthrough moment here. I had three failed instruments in elementary school were, where it was really more about the organizational structure of the group, and like it was the the hunger of making this twenty dollar guitar make a sound that was sensible and made me happy that really drove me. So like I mean just putting that just letting your kid know it's okay to pick it up and play with it like the if even if that never happens that's money well spent I mean that's like you buy insurance that you hope you never use like why not have a guitar around that that kid could play on or in my case like giving my kid or kid garage band and going like just go do whatever like it's just just do it just play 
I really hope she does destroy it because to this day, I find the, the action like it's hard too high. She might be able to fix it. it. She could bend it a little bit and play, play it in the shower. I, tr- maybe. I tried that. I took the little, <laughs> you know, the little plastic bits that hold the string up. Like I took those off and I restrung it several times over because I broke strings out in college. And sure, I, I, it, it's it's hopeless. Um, yeah, I hope she does kill it. But you no, know, like what you just said, like with learning something where there is not a pressure situation, like learning guitar. My freshman year in college with a bunch of other people on my floor was the most kind of like laid back like it's almost like you weren't even learning guitar it's just like by being on that floor through osmosis we all somehow learned because when we started off there was like two people who could play anything by the end of the year like everybody on that floor could play a, a bunch of open chords how did that happen it wasn't a concerted effort it's just something just you're just in people's rooms you know what it's like when i you're, totally uh, know what you're talking freshman. about like it's it, it is going to be impossible to replicate in any other place or time like enjoy that while you can because it's weird and it's annoying and people smell but like that that was so great for me to be like around all these other people where we could just you know play guitar together and like and pick that up from each other i mean and we picked up all you know, pick up all sorts of things from each other right, like right, that yeah, kind right, of environment sure. where you're living away from home for the first time how, how do i learn to play uh you know uh nhl 97 on the uh the what the hell system was those the snes whatever like how, how did i learn about pink floyd the wall how did i get into all these bands you're just you're right. just on that floor with all these people and it's just it, you yeah, know, osmosis is the wrong word, but I don't have a better one. It's more like th- like some kind of chaos thing, some kind of Lawrence curve, where you're just bouncing around in this little like human dryer, and like you're going to bounce into these other people randomly, and like that ends up like what even if like you know five percent of those interactions are something interesting, intriguing, or weird, like that's you're so lucky to have that. Yeah, and it's for me especially it was the first time being away from my parents, like in a whole different state where I got to choose what I wanted to do. Uh, and I made choices that I, that just didn't even seem to be like on the menu back at home. Like all, all these things that I got into people, I talked to things that I learned. I could have done all that at home. I like that. My parents weren't stopping me from doing that, but it's like, it just, it just felt different. Um, it felt nothing like any kind of musical instrument lesson or any kind of lesson. Like learning guitar felt like, God, I don't know what what a good analogy is. It's like it didn't feel like learning anything else had. It felt like just just having fun. It felt like I don't know, maybe if you go camping in the woods for the summer and it's like, hey, when did you learn how to pitch a tent? It's like well, I didn't learn how to pitch a tent. I just went camping in the woods for the summer and by the end of the summer I knew how to pitch a tent. And well well yeah, you- and like you you I mean I, I really I don't want to say obsessive over this, but it's really important to me to like try and <clears throat> learn where I'm getting in the way of my kid being allowed to have our own intrinsic interest in things where like, you know, as soon as I mentioned, I'm interested in something I've poisoned it. Right. Because now dad likes that. So I'm trying to have, have fewer and fewer things where like, I've got my imprimatur on this entire area. Cause that's just going to be another thing that she probably not, not in a bad way, but she's growing. And like one way she learns who she is, is that she's not me. Um, I mean, we're still pals and stuff, but like, I get that. And so like, but there's something about like the intrinsic value of whatever you do. Um, being something that you do just because you did it, you figured it out for yourself on your own terms is invaluable. There's nothing better than that. Like, even if it's something your parents told you 500 times, the first time you get it for yourself, it might as well be the newest thought technology in the world. Yeah. And the flip side of this going slightly back to like the food shame thing is that I have, I have musical instrument shame at this point, I realize because there are so many things that I used to be able to do involving musical instruments that I can no longer do at all. Like, it depresses me sometimes if I see a keyboard because I have this urge to go sit down in front of the keyboard and, and play 
the 17 approximations of 80 hits that I used to know, uh, and I can't do any of them anymore. And wow. I, would, I would like I would like to be able to do them because I because all I had done is basically memorized. Like if you can imagine, you know, I, I would memorize songs. I would never look at music when I was doing them. I would look at the music to figure out what it was, and I would memorize the song. So it's like memorizing a very complicated series of hand motions that have no meaning to you other than the <laughs> fact that you just memorized them by rote. Right. Um, and I like and I can't play any of them anymore. And guitar, I I can try to puzzle out to remember the beginning of Under the Bridge, and. You know, and I can I can hold on to a couple of my chords that I can still play. A lot of them I can't do the finger motions, and I feel bad about it. I feel bad that it's like this thing that you enjoyed that you used to be able to do. Yeah, it was just a fun little thing, it, and I don't have that with any other topic. I think like just the music stuff is just entirely left to me, and it kind of depresses me whenever I see a musical instrument because I mean you know what it's like in real life. Like whenever, can you imagine like if you walked into a room and there's a bunch of guitars sitting there, how are you not going to pick one of them up and then right. start playing? So right. Like it's right. impossible not to. Like that is going to happen. That is absolutely impossible to stop. It'd be like, be like torturing someone to put them in a room with guitar and say, don't pick it up. Um, I have that same urge, but when I pick it up, I can't do a damn thing with it. Like I can, it might as well be a tennis racket, right? And that right. depresses me. I'm like, oh, but you used to be able to do this. Where did that all go? Is it just because you didn't practice? It just, yeah, but it you, just I mean, fell away. Well, I mean, the truth is you could. You could pick it back up. I mean, Right, like, you could pick it back up, and, <laughs> but it would be like work. It would be like almost like starting over. It's like all these things you used to be able to. The, the piano one kills me the most because I think I was, I could more convincingly convince people. Like I could play something on piano and be like, oh, you know what? I could never do that on guitar. No, no, one, ever, I was never, no one was ever convinced that I could play guitar. Mm-hmm. They were convinced that I could make some noises with it that sounded like something, but, no one was, but piano, if I played through one of my songs, I would say, well, you have no rhythm, but I recognize that as a song. I could play Lions and Lucy and like, oh, you're playing that Peanut song right? Bad, badly out of rhythm, but that's totally the Peanut song. That's, and now I just can't. I just can't do anything with it. I can't, I can't <laughs> amuse myself, and I have, I have uh, musical instrument guilt. <sighs> like, and, and like the thing is, I wouldn't have guilt if I didn't have the urge to pick it up. I, I want, if I go into a room with a guitar, I absolutely want to pick up that guitar. And I just, I just hold it there and just like snuggle it. I don't know what to do with it. But like, like, why would they make you feel guilty? Well, I mean, you know, you're not, you're not a doofus. You know, you could just go and start picking up that yeah, guitar it, anytime. It, it just or, feels or like, it just feels like a waste. Like, and I, I feel it in a way I don't feel it with like art. Because like drawing, we, I don't know, we haven't, we should put this on the topic list. So yeah. I think I've talked about it in the past, but like art and stuff, I'm, I've probably lost that kind of in the same way, but I feel like, you know what? Put anything in front of me. I can figure it out. I can draw it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like that is more closely at hand than these other skills that I had. And so maybe that maybe that actually is some underlying talent and, and uh proficiency in that where it's not the case with musical instruments. But I don't I don't feel that urge that much to to uh to make art with pencils and pens and paints. But musical instruments, like I what I want is that feeling that you just described, the one eight hundredth of that feeling that you just described. I had a little bit of that feeling too and it was fun. And whenever I see the things that, that comes from I want to get it back, and then I feel like, oh, isn't it a shame that you've let yourself that you haven't kept in practice that this that you can't that you can't get back there and do that thing, right? Maybe when I'm old and retired, I'll start noodling away on that and drive my wife crazy, making terrible noises with a, a guitar <laughs> or something. Take a load off, Annie. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Like I, I mentioned this before, but <clears throat> I recently got this little ukulele-sized guitar, six-string guitar. 
And it just sits around in the living room, and it's really fun. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this documentary about Elliot Smith, and I go over, and I grab the guitar, and I start playing an Elliot Smith song, and I go, oh, you know, I should trim my nails. I trim my nails, I start playing, I find a pick, and, like, uh, pretty soon I'm playing guitar again, and it's it's right there. It's, I, you know, and I'm, this is, there's nothing transformative about this. This is not the end of an uh, inspiring movie, but, like, now it is part of my life again, and I, I maybe do it twice a week, but it's always there. And if I want to play it, I play it. If my kid wants to play it, we play it. But um, it's you know y- you shouldn't beat yourself up about that you know I just feel it just feels like a shame it just feels a little bit sad well like, you, you, you can you, fix that you can totally fix that yeah you can like that's the whole thing it's like that's why you feel the shame you're like well you know you feel bad about eating that food you can totally fix it just eat different food like, you have, yeah, have met a shame it's you know that you could you could fix it but you won't. Yeah, because like you got other things to do and you're busy. But even like on podcast, you'll pull out the guitar. It's like it's like next to you. Well, it's it's just it's just out of headphone reach right now, or I grab it. But right, at a moment's notice, you're just up and you're at same thing. Same thing with John. He's got his guitar obviously nearby. I don't think you plan these things. It's just like someone starts <laughs> we playing. We do not plan these things. The other one picks up a guitar and you're strumming away and you're making the wrong chords and you're singing the wrong notes. But like whatever, we played perfect notes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You're saying uh-huh. I did my blues progression wrong. No, I don't know. It's so hard to hear. Like your, your podcast Skype. setup is not is not good for mic and guitars. Like <laughs> the guitar, you might as well be in a different room playing the guitar. Skype is not ready for the blues jam. Yeah, no, I, I enjoy that. People enjoy hearing people play music. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that's that's probably the best we're going to do with the first run at music. But there's obviously a lot there. Oh my god, so much more than I thought. Um, let's see. Let me check the notes here. Oh, dude, two forty six. Oof. Oof. You can cut this down. Me? No, the kid'll do it. Yeah. 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 Um Yeah, so you know, it, we we might pick it up another time. You never know. A- any closing thoughts? Are closing thoughts on music or closing thoughts on uh episodes one through ten? Up to you. I mean, like it seems like a big topic uh, at two forty six, but do, do you have closing thoughts on, on the uh on our experiment? Yeah, so we said we were going to do 10 episodes. We didn't know what the hell we were going to be talking about. Uh, we kind of figured it out as we went along. Uh, I wanted to cap it at 10 episodes because I didn't want to sign up for, uh, you know, Wars Without End. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to get into another quagmire, you know. Right, sure. You just want to... That, that just seems like heavyweight thing. Like, indefinitely... For essentially the rest of my life, I'm going to do this thing on this schedule, and it just stretches out before you. Well, so especially like, like you know, less than a year after getting out from under the OS 10 review, I right. would, I would be. So, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I would be slavish about my commitments if I were you. Yeah, and so 10 felt like a thing, and also I didn't know if people were going to bother listening, uh, or if people would like it, or if we would have things to talk about. Um, but after doing 10 of these things, I, I think two things: one. I think that I definitely want to do more of them, so we will. So if you're thinking this is going to be the last episode, fear not. It won't. We will do more. Um, and two, I am open to the idea of, you just referred to it a while back as season two, I'm open to the idea of the next round of things, if not being radically different, then slowly mutating in terms of the topic. Because I think mm-hmm. that the thing that, that we outlined here of how we got the way we are uh, is going to run its course eventually. But we'll still be here hanging out. And what I think about is, you know, that, now that I'm saying the show is modeled on Roderick on the Line, but definitely inspired by it and owes a lot to it. And I'm a big fan of that show. It's I can't help but be influenced by it. And I think about what the hell is that show about? I don't know. You just show up and talk and somehow it works. And I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to. 
I think I probably need more structure than that right. in, in my life. But uh, as close as I can get to pairing away structure and still having something to me that feels like that, only with different participants, um, I, I'm willing to go for that. So I don't know what season two will be like. I think we will continue along this vein because we still have not exhausted these topics. Probably stick to the fortnightly schedule, but maybe try and release them sooner after uh, recording. But you know, yeah. But to, to your point, I mean, there's something to the thermodynamics of podcasting or whatever publishing in general, which is that you know, if you've got a topic and you do a show, and at the end of that cycle, you feel like, okay, I've got another topic, and at the end of that cycle, you go, okay, I've got another topic. Like you're probably okay for a while. So you know, the horrible version of that is, I'm so excited to do this thing, and then at the end of the show, you're like, I don't even have any more for this episode. I have less than nothing to talk about from now on. But in this case, I have to, for myself. I feel like every time we're done with the show, I feel like I have five more things we could talk about. I'm really not worried about whether we'll have something to talk about. I like the idea of structure. I like the idea of you know keeping on a timely schedule. I like the idea of some kind of a commitment you know, to a short term thing. We don't have to make this a forever thing. But, um, you know, but, you know, as we've learned from the hypercritical approach is like, the more we do it, the more we'll figure out what it maybe could be in terms of being better or different. But yeah, hypercritical had a much more structure than I'm looking But you know what here, I mean? Right? Yeah, I, I mean, hyper, like hypercritical more as a concept, I mean, the idea that we can make this, you know, better as we go. Yeah. When you get done with a, a Roderick thing, or even a back to work for that matter, do you feel like like that you are generating topics for the next time or do you do you feel like oh that was that and the next time we'll come in and something new will happen both of those shows at this point are kind of a personality parade where it it could be it might as well it could be a morning radio show where like we could talk about whatever which is not to say we're out of topics because i mean this is not a slight to dan but like with roderick in particular like boy just like what time of day do you start talking to him and what will come out like who knows that's i'm never worried about that um yeah but in the case of this like i think there's 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 still a lot of stuff there's still a lot of directions it could go and a lot of i mean i don't want to talk too much inside baseball but yeah i'm, I'm glad you're going to keep going with it and we would love if people stick around for a second season do we want people to contact us about this God, I don't know. What would they say? Yeah, that's a good like, point. Don't don't contact us, <laughs> but um, but stick around. We don't know when it'll be. We'll have to talk to uh, to our friends at uh, Relay. But uh, yeah, I think we we feel pretty good about doing another another season. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think that there's any reason for there to be a big gap or anything, other than the fact that I'm going away on vacation again. But other, other than scheduling things, like it's not like we're intentionally going to be put put a big pause between quote unquote season one and season two. We're just right. going to continue the show. So please continue listening. Stay subscribed to the feed. Yeah, the please. Next episode. At this point, what, we're recording 10, and the last one that was released was 7? Oh, sorry. It was around 1988. It came out. It yeah. the last one. Now, I think we're, I think we're like four to six weeks out. But no, well, I, you know, we'll talk about that. But I think I like the idea of getting more on like a – like you said, there's, just because we record every week, every two every weeks. Every week. Like, we, doesn't yeah, we mean we record. have to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Record on a Tuesday or Wednesday and release it on a Friday or Saturday seems entirely, and then just repeat that. Yeah, what's up with that, Mike? So we got drugs, we got Trust Your Mechanic, anime, sports we covered pretty much, scary movies, travel. I want to do, uh, I left that down there because it's participation in sports, yes. Oh, yeah, Foster Transformer, that was my team, yeah. So, um... And I think, I still think there's more musical stuff in there because we... We barely got up to the point where we're God, I forgot about, like, to talk about the organ. Ah, I gotta talk about bands the organ. and and, uh, and influences and live shows and being fan of bands and all the music people you know and what how music people are like. This this yeah, and for you like live live venues and 
as petri dish and also drinking like mm-hmm. I, i'm curious about like how you feel about the prospect of getting a sitter and going to a show at this point or at any point yes <laughs> yeah. so there's there's a lot even just the, the stuff we talked about now there's a lot more there um and maybe this season we've learned what the various well i don't know what the pitfalls are what the topics that we should avoid or endeavor to avoid uh articles of faith <sighs> not even just that. i think I we did fine i think yeah, I, we get yeah. a solid c plus for the season i think it was mm. good i think it was good people mm. seem to like it i can tell you that people the, the people who like the show like it and that makes me uh want to do more of it so i feel i feel exactly the same way i mean my ambition for the show is uh in one way like desperately selfish which is i just wanted to do a fun thing with you and have you want to do it and have me want to do it and have it be fun but secondarily my goal if i had any metric was not about a certain number it was about if there are people that i'm not even gonna be coy about it if people like stuff we do and and they like this show like i'll know it's succeeded like this is not a show to be your introduction to either of us unless it is in which case welcome but like to me like if there are people who like both of us i would love for them to go like you know, this was pretty close to what I wanted. And if, you know, and if you'd like other things, and if you have suggestions, honestly, you can uh, toot at us on Twitter at Rectifs, R-E-C-D-I-F-F-S on Twitter. Um, John is at Syracusa on Twitter. I am at Hot Dogs Ladies on Twitter. And um, I don't know. You want to button it up? Sure thing. Yeah. So um, good season. High five. Season. That's so weird. We've done a lot of good work here.